0: good morning to your Royal Oaks in to Doug McIntyre here on talk radio 790k ABC so Randy Wang you know when you play that music I feel like Doug Llewellyn I feel like a bailiff okay you you don't look like a bailiff though you look more like you know <laughs> for if, if people haven't seen a picture of Rob Marenko what would you say Randy first I would say no, there's, a Tom there's Tom Cruise there's Tom uh, Cruise some Harrison Ford rolled in yes okay, well he doesn't look
1: fine. like the bailiff he looks like the guy going to jail yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm just trying to, if we had a composite, if like, yeah. the, you know, the police sketch, there'd be the Cary Grant element. Um, Good dose of Fabio. Oh, oh what, I think maybe just Pierce Brosnan. If you just said, you don't have to say all those other oh, stars. Okay. Just said, wouldn't you say, Rob, that would be the, uh, I mean, just cast modesty aside. I'm I'm fine with all that. Yeah. So That's I why think, he
1: has found the great career of radio. Yeah.
0: <laughs> People have told me I have a face for radio, and I, I, it brings a smile to my face, and then I... My face gets all scrunched up and I don't realize what they're saying. And I I know I've been insulted. Anyway, uh, so good morning to you all. Uh, Hope you uh, had a fantastic Christmas. Uh, Rob, did you have a good one? I hope. I I did, in fact. It was uh, wonderful. It was more than
2: anything to me. I like Christmas to be chilly. And it was chilly. And you got what you wanted. It wasn't 95 like it is sometimes, and it was nice, Christmassy.
0: Excellent. How about you, Randy Wang? How was your holiday? I'm still recovering from all the eating that I did on Sunday. <laughs> all right. Fair, fair enough. So the... Um yeah, the, the uh, gosh, we're going to get our friend Jim Murray back on the show today. We had him on uh, last week. He's so nice to come back because sure. apparently he actually covered George Michael uh, extensively. And so he's got some, some really interesting insights uh, about George Michael. We'll have him a little later in the morning. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the fact that uh, capital punishment is on hold. You know, we had that weird pair of uh propositions on the ballot last month uh one of them said hey let's get rid of it no more capital punishment and the other one said oh it's fine let's just streamline it you know let's make it a little quicker instead of 25 years of appeals let's go with five years
1: well what's ironic is now this is going to go through 25 years of appeals (laughs)
0: yeah exactly right that's where i was headed because the california supreme court Got involved, as they often do, if, if possibly the electorate does something that is a little squishy. And so somebody immediately filed a lawsuit and said, okay, the one proposition that said no more capital punishment, that lost. All right, so that's out. Uh, the other proposition that said let's streamline it, that won. And so that's enacted. And, of course, interestingly, I think we talked about this a couple of months ago, Rob, if both of them had passed, if, mm-hmm. if the voters had both said, hey, let's get rid of it completely and let's streamline it, what do you do? Well, would yeah, be lot- like having a humidifier and a dehumidifier <laughs> in the same room, right? <laughs> exactly right. Good analogy. So the, the answer is whoever got the most votes would win. So if the let's Junk It" got a million and a half votes... And the streamlined one gets million four, then the let's junk it wins. Well, it didn't happen that way. The, the, there just isn't enough support to get rid of it. I think that capital punishment over the last several decades has been creeping down from about 75% support down to 55%, mm, 60%. That's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. Anyway, so we got this, this new law that says let's streamline it, which is kind of it's, it's a scandal. When you think about it we have such a shortage of lawyers who are equipped to handle capital punishment cases. Let's say, Rob Marinko, Uh you know, things go wrong. And you're convicted of a capital crime, and you're on death Harrison row. Okay. Four
2: just a second ago. Well,
0: this is an emotional roller coaster. This show, wouldn't wouldn't you say? It, ups and downs. Just every segment. There's the great potential for, for swooping up and down. So let's just hypothetically All say, right. Rob, that okay. you've been uh, convicted of some horrendous crime. You're sitting there on death row, which is actually better than sitting in a regular cell because it's it's cushier. You got uh, you got people running around doing stuff for you, and you got more room, and you got access to a library, and so it's on. It's cushier. Yeah, it is a little cushier. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of states don't like it. Uh-huh. A lot of states say we're coddling the worst of the right. worst. and anyway. give them Xboxes. Yeah, I think you're right. So let's get back to our hypothetical. Yes. Rob's on death row. Right. Uh, you're sitting there. You're saying, oh, man, this really sucks big time because, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. And so, uh, but I've seen it happen on TV. We're going to turn this baby around, right? Guess what? You don't get a lawyer for, you want to guess how many years? I'm going to guess it's a few. Five years. Yeah. The average time before the, the people lined up you know, to be lawyers for these cases or they get their call, it, you don't get a lawyer for five years. Now, by that time, let's say, again, hypothetically, Rob Marinko is innocent of this capital crime. Is that fair that you don't even have an investigator, a lawyer, a team on your side to prove your innocence? It's idiotic. And that's one of the reasons it takes 25 years, before, because it's before you even have day one of a lawyer looking at your case, cracking that 18-foot-high pile of paper is five years. So that's part of the reform process. They're going to spend more money. They're going to hire more lawyers and so on. But the California Supreme Court is faced with a lawsuit. A lawsuit comes in a few days after the election, and the suit says, hey— Uh, You know what? Uh, This is unfair. It deprives people of their rights. You can't speed up a 25-year appeal. It's just fair to give them 25 years. I mean, nobody likes the first five years being totally wasted, but then it's 20 years. So the California Supreme Court said, you know what? We think they might be right. We're going to put this on hold. We're not going to start streamlining capital punishment after all. So... That's, uh we're going to be talking about that later today as well. We're also going to be talking uh, about uh, all the folks we lost, all the famous folks that we lost in the news this year. And, uh, of course, obviously George Michael is, is fresh in the news. But, you know, Muhammad Ali. I thought the, the strangest media event of the year was the situation when we lost Prince and, of course, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but for like a day or two, that was the event in the sure. media cycle. Well, it, was Every, it was big. It was big. It was big. And, and you know, Wolf Blitzer, the, the, the head anchor at, at CNN, I, I recall that he weighed in on the death of Prince. And it was just so sad. Everybody was talking about Prince. And, and, and at one point, Wolf Blitzer said, yes, we've lost Prince. What a musical genius. Who could forget Purple Haze? No. And I thought, you well, know, maybe I'm too old, <laughs> but the fact I remember Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Purple Haze, You're and right. for Wolf Blitzer to do that, oh, I felt man. like sending him a nasty letter. But um, That's no. right up Wolf's alley. He's fallen yeah. apart <laughs> the last 10
1: years. <laughs> Purple Haze. You remember uh, what Wolf Blitzer said during Hurricane Katrina? He no. Was, uh, he was looking at footage of the rioting. Heck and of he a said, job, Brownie? Is voice. that what he said? He looked at the people rioting and he said on the screen, on the television, yeah. they are so poor and
0: they are so black. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> really? I remember that. Yes. That seems inappropriate somehow. <laughs> uh, insensitive? Or, yeah. That, that's, that's pretty yeah. strange. <laughs> uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, fake news. Uh, you know, I wouldn't think that. Uh, You'd be bothered by this, uh, Rob Marenko, Ace Newsman. You, your your news isn't fake. You know what's fake and it, is don't you think the market system should just let it sort out? Do we do we should we really be worrying about so much fake news out on the internet? I mean, we got Snopes. You can go on Snopes and these other websites. No, be, those are liar
1: websites too. Oh, are they're they? all in the can?
0: Oh, are they? Well, I guess if they have a political motivation, I guess some people have said are the Snopes people a little on the progressive uh, side? A little bit. Okay, yeah. so a are, lot
1: of these fact checking websites they're all one sided. They're biased. They're not even checking no, facts. No, man's got a point. Aren't there
0: any right-wing website uh, checkers, uh, fact checkers, that, where you can go? Uh, if you don't want fake news, just don't turn on MSNBC or <laughs> ABC or
2: CBS. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that's a good point. And we're also going to be talking about uh, Sheriff Baca. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, the uh, assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted Baca, and was a, a terrible guy, he was the leader of the conspiracy and so on, six months ago... When the U.S. attorney was trying to convince the judge to go along with the six-month deal, you know, all, all he deserves to have is six months, they were trashing their own case. They were saying, you know, the evidence against those underlings, that was really strong. You know, we're nine for nine. We got Tanaka and the rest of them. But the evidence against the sheriff, mm, not so much. So, therefore, judge, we support the six-month plea deal. So, how about it? How about a little something for the effort? And the judge's reaction was... I don't think so. The judge looked at the evidence and, you know, you got to give the judge credit. He he had the guts to say, you know, I don't care that both sides want to put an end to this and save everybody 20 million bucks. I see the evidence and I don't see it as a six month case. So, uh, guys, you know, I'm not going to approve that. And that caused the the sheriff to roll the dice. And although he didn't win, I mean, 11 to 1, uh, not guilty, ain't bad. 545 The Time on Talk Radio, 790K ABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Glad you decided uh, to join us this nice, smooth, slow weekend. Uh, And I think it's time to check in with uh, Bill Thomas and see how the road's looking. Good morning to you, Bill. 551 The Time, Talk Radio, 790K ABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Good Tuesday morning to you. So, Rob Marinko, big—we're uh, talking about an emotional roller coaster, very emotional year in politics. I mean, people are saying they've never seen anything like it in terms of folks just just getting so wound up and so agitated. And the Wall Street Journal, uh, actually, they've got a Wall Street Journal NBC poll. They they kind of confirmed it. They said uh, that it really had an effect on people's private, personal lives. A third of Americans said they avoided talking politics with family members or got into heated arguments with family or friends, over the last year, because of the whole Trump thing, did you see that in your personal life? A little
2: bit, but not as much as you might think. You don't have any friends on the other side of the oh, political
0: of course spectrum. Not. That's no. what it boils no, down to.
1: <laughs> Rob's whole family is the alt right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe be, that's true to a degree. Maybe some folks tend to kind of hang out with uh, uh, like-minded people. But I think uh, no. I-, I noticed that there was just a lot of tension within lots of families, businesses people were taking it personally. I've heard that, Royal, but uh, again,
2: I've got a lot of friends on the other side uh, uh, that are opposed to my political views, vice versa. And there were plenty of discussions about politics, and rarely did they get heated. It was more of a humorous thing. Well, you got you can't. Believe, you, uh-huh. You're not for them. Oh no, but you can't be for them. And yeah, you can't. well, that's
0: because you're such a mellow guy, Rob Robert. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But according to this Wall Street Journal poll, more than one in five said they had been harassed for their political beliefs. Nearly that many said they had blocked somebody on social media because of the election. Yeah, that happened to Rob. Okay, so more than half of those surveyed said they had at least one of those experiences uh, with with personal vitriolic attacks between the candidates and so on. Uh, Peter Hart, a Democratic pollster, uh, helped do the survey, and he said this is hand-to-hand combat that came right into family and friends, and it's still being fought. Clinton voters were more likely to get crosswise with family and friends Over the election. And of course, obviously, they were the losers, but boy, talk about the emotion bubbling to the surface. You heard stories about people who were just catatonic and so on. Well, yeah, exactly. Afterwards, people
2: were just going weeping in the streets mm-hmm. and
1: rioting. Well, and it's just... because they think anyone who voted for Trump is a racist and a bigot, so they think America is racist and bigoted. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. wrong, so, but that's so, what they think. So Peggy yeah.
0: Noonan was writing about this, and, and she was contrasting the two sides. She said a, a pro-Trump person was quoted as saying, you know, I just can't stop feeling happy. <laughs> And on the other side, she said a a despairing Democrat told me she had not only wept on election night, but she vomited and she was still beside herself. You know, when you think about it. I mean, local politics can affect you so dramatically. If somebody uh-huh. does something, zoning or something, it's going to be in your face every single day. National politics, eh. I mean, it, I, yeah, I can see how people get uh, so emotional about it, but it's so removed in most cases for most of us. And yet, boy, it was it was right in our face. Every single day for about about a year and a half. Most people are going to go back to the bubbles after this. I still claim,
1: though, this was the ultimate year to come out of the closet because everyone want to talk about something else. That's true.
0: That's true. Well, we should find out how, how many folks, uh, if more than the usual number, uh, took advantage of it. 554 The Time, talk radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, tasers in the air. Korean Air is getting tough with drunk passengers. Stay with us. Six oh five, the time. Talk radio, seven ninety KABC, the place. Royal Oaks. From Doug, in for Doug McIntyre this week. Holiday week. Hope everybody's having a nice, relaxed, mellow time. Well, the guys on uh, death row aren't having a very mellow time. It's got to be got to be a stressful place there. Of course, it's that's right. <laughs> it's only right. A stressful place. Yeah, I would think so. Oh, um, all right. But you know, uh, it's just such a weird thing. Capital punishment in California, in particular, but but in America in general you know we believe in it most people believe in it I, the survey shows 55 percent 60% i used to be 70 75% but uh we don't really uh we don't really pull the trigger very much no
2: unless you are in texas or florida
0: yeah yeah and, and it's it's idiotic this business of it taking 15 20 25 years it's just insane uh, t- to think that somebody would be, would be in limbo like that. You know, there was a federal judge in Orange County within the last year who, who just got fed up and said is enough uh, is enough. And it wasn't just some, you know, wild-haired radical who didn't believe in capital punishment this judge just said, you know, it, it really amounts to cruel and unusual punishment for it to be so arbitrary, so discretionary, you know, so protracted. You, you don't know what's going to happen when the system is broken, essentially, is what he said. Now, he got overturned by the Ninth Circuit, as I recall. So and and it was just one trial judge anyway. But it's sort of symptomatic about the fact that we we don't really know what to do. And we, you know, we've, we've been talking about the fact that we had conflicting propositions on the ballot recently in California. One of them said, let's get rid of capital punishment completely. And the other one said, no, let's streamline it. And the, the, the abolish it one lost and the streamline it uh, passed. So that's what we're faced now. You know, a lot of people worry uh, about making mistakes. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rob Marinko, maybe you've made a study of this. Have you actually ever heard of a confirmed case where we killed somebody— legally the state and then it was determined later oops oh man do i feel stupid turns out we know for sure he was innocent i've never heard of it in the history of the united states have you
2: no uh, not only have i not heard of it but if there were a case like that i would imagine that person would be the poster boy or girl for the anti-death penalty movement and they don't have one single case they just say it
1: could happen yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, and the possibility is serious enough for for us to take it seriously and say, "All right, now are we sure about this?" Now, in a way, you could argue, well, it's it, of course death is different, but is it really unique in the sense that let's say you you know convict somebody when they're twenty for for murder in the first degree, you know, you know ten people, and they're gone forever you take their life away, you take 80 years of their life, you can't give that back. Now, obviously, you can make a distinction between life and death. But the point is, it's a serious thing. It deserves all this scrutiny. But does it deserve 25 years? So what we have is a proposition Prop 66 passed last month in California. It changes how appeals are handled. It appoints more lawyers to take capital cases. It puts some types of appeals in front of trial court judges, and it sets a five-year deadline for appeals to be heard because currently it can take up to five years for lawyers to get assigned to the case and about 25 years for the, uh, the capital case to work its way through the system. So along comes a lawsuit. Uh, ...against the proposition, and the lawsuit says, oh, it's going to disrupt the courts, it's going to be a lot more expensive, it's going to limit the ability for people to advance proper appeals, the deadlines are inordinately short, and so what happens? The California Supreme Court gets involved very quickly, and they say, you know what, we, there might be merit to this lawsuit, so we're putting on hold the proposition that would have streamlined capital punishment in California. And, you know, it's but it's kind of going away. I mean, studies have shown that fewer criminals were sentenced to death in 2016 than at any time in the last four decades since the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the use of the death penalty back in the 70s is sort of the, the, the sea change up until that point. we were rolling along and a lot of people thought it was racist because a highly disproportionate. A percentage of people of color ended up getting on death row and being executed, and so the U.S. Supreme Court said, "You know what? It, there, there are some flaws in the system. We're really worried about discrimination, and they actually abolished capital punishment for a, a series of years. And everybody who was on death row, they get the uh, they get out of death row uh, a free card, including our friend Charlie Manson. Mm-hmm. Manson would have been put to death." but for the U.S. Supreme Court coming along in the 70s and saying, you know what, this really is not working right. So what they do is they think and they tinker and several years go by and they emerge and they say, we got it, we got it. A two-step process. If you're on trial for your life so that you might end up being executed, trial number one decides are you guilty or not, and if you are guilty, was it so bad that you might be eligible for the death penalty? That's step one. Step two, a few weeks or months later, you have a totally separate trial where the guy stands up and the only issue is death versus life. And the Supreme Court's idea was this is going to cut down on the discriminatory and the arbitrary aspect of it. And that's what we've been living with for the last several decades. And in that period, I mean, it's pretty amazing to think that it last this year, 2016, fewer executions than at any time ...in the last four decades since they they came up with this two-part system. Just five states implemented the death penalty in 2016. Florida, Texas, of course, Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. Of the 20 men put to death this year, 16 were white, two were black, and two were Latino. Uh, The declining use of the death penalty is coming as the states reconsider the cost of executing prisoners. And another big issue... And it's amazing to me, Rob Marinko. This is a, this a two-part, three-part uh, death penalty cocktail of drugs. Oh, we can't. We have a shortage. We ran out. Oh, you know, the 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 needles don't work right. How how is this possible? Now, not to compare animals with human beings, but we kill countless animals every day, and I think they've developed a system where it's not incredibly, you know, horribly painful. I mean. Yeah, for for Why those can't of they us do it for, humans? for those of us who have attended
2: uh, an animal being put down and have its life ended, uh, obviously it's a, a very emotional thing. But for them, for the animal, it's um, it looks to be fairly simple and, and that's painless what we're always short. told by the vet the vets yeah. assure us and right. and
0: based on our observation well, you and we've all it. been through this yeah. we witness it they go to sleep yeah there's no horrible suffering so how is it we can't develop the technology so that you put a guy to sleep. I mean, you hear these stories about, oh, my God, he's paralyzed, he's, he's suffering, and he's in pain, and you yeah. can't, he can't tell you about it. How come? Those stories I mean, you know, always... the Schnauzer doesn't go through this problem. You know right? what also
1: doesn't have that problem? The Who? firing squad.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I think they still, didn't they do that in Utah they still do Gary that Gary Gilmore Utah. several years they ago? They did.
2: Yeah, And I think it's still an option. In Utah, I believe you get three choices of the way that you Want to be executed? I think there's firing squad.
1: Yeah, and they'll give you a cigarette for that, so at least you're getting something. Still? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it just strikes me as kind of ridiculous that many states have literally shut down the operation. Yeah, just because they can't figure out the cocktail. And well, so how on.
1: can you say a cocktail that's designed to kill? Like that's what its purpose is. Is that how is that cruel and unusual punishment?
0: Yeah. No. It, it's kind of insane. Uh, The Gallup survey recently found 60% of Americans do support capital punishment. It's down 7% over the last decade. It's down 20 points from its high in 1994. Only three people on the federal side, and we're mostly talking about state courts here, the federal death penalty exists. Only three people have been executed through the use of the federal death penalty since the year 2001. And the last one was in 2003. Uh, The September Pew Research Center poll found just 49 percent of Americans favor the death penalty, down from a peak of 80 percent in 1994. Nebraska's legislature repealed the death penalty last year. uh, But voters came along and said, not so fast, uh, Mr. Legislature. They overturned the measure and they reinstated capital punishment in November. Oklahoma voters passed a constitutional amendment. That said, the death penalty is not cruel or unusual punishment, and then of course we've got our California Proposition to 66 you know, that we know about. Royal, there's so
2: much evidence that this is just political will because you mentioned Oklahoma, for instance. Uh, Timothy McVeigh was convicted and executed. Boy, I, I, I think without exaggeration, it was within like two years or something. Oh, it was, it was fast, ridiculously fast. And I know it was a federal case, but still, it
0: can be done. It can justice can be swift. Yeah, and that's what the people who passed Prop 66 want, uh, and now it's going to take an unknown number of years to sort out the litigation because uh, the California Supreme Court has said, okay, we're putting this thing on hold. We're just not—we don't—we're not sure that it's legal. We've got 19 states uh, and the District of Columbia that have actually eliminated the death penalty completely. Democrat governors in Colorado and Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Washington have issued executive orders halting the progress of death penalty cases, although inmates are still on death row. And Delaware's Supreme Court ruled just the other week that the state's death penalty law is unconstitutional. Back in, uh, back in uh, 1999, when crime rates were much higher, states executed 98 prisoners, nearly five times as many as were executed this year in 2016. You got 2,900 convicted prisoners, Sitting on death rows across America, California has 741 inmates awaiting death sentences, and Connecticut, which abolished the death penalty last year, is the only state in the union with an empty death row. So uh, the issue is on everybody's radar screen around the country, but uh, you know there, there's no there's no easy answer, no clear resolution, uh, and absolutely no clear resolution here in in California. Hey, with the holidays upon us, we thank you for choosing 790 KABC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Julian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 news crew for enlightening, relevant news, and compelling, entertaining talk. News Talk Evolved, 790 KABC. Time six sixteen on KABC. So big new rule uh, being considered uh, in uh, California. Rob Marinko, uh, should lawyers have sex with their clients? What How do you feel say? about this, counselor? What would you say? Well, no. Let's get <laughs> let's get Rob's vote first. Oh, should there be a ban, Rob, against a lawyer having sex with their clients? Oh man,
2: uh, no. I if don't you think were can so. No. no
0: it, it, here's the Couldn't deal. would that be kind of messy? You know. Well, yeah. Around but... the office. <sighs>
2: It's just human behavior. Yeah, well. I, if if it's
0: if they're consenting adults, I don't see why they shouldn't be able to get busy. Then you may not be happy because the uh, the bar association here in California is considering. They haven't done it yet. Yeah, they're considering overhauling ethics rules for lawyers. It's for the first time in thirty years they're going to change this, uh, and and it's going to be a total ban on sex with clients. If you represent somebody then you can't listen what was the phrase i think get busy was the phrase that you use listen you guys
2: know you're expensive okay Uh there's got to be a way to get that
0: that well some are more expensive than others there's david boys who's two thousand dollars an hour Uh now that's expensive yeah Yeah. how do you think casey anthony paid for her lawyer (laughs) aren't you worried about getting sued randy i mean so uh so California bar- uh, law currently bars lawyers from coercing a client into sex or demanding sex in exchange for legal representation. Yeah, but th- those things are against the law anyway. Right, and that's what lawyers are—you know—really good at is passing sure. superfluous, uh, pointless rules. But <laughs> so that's the current rule. The current rule is you may have sex with your client uh-huh. unless you're coercing them, as you say, duh, or. It, it, maybe this isn't so obvious. It, a lawyer could go up to somebody and say, "Oh boy, you uh, really need some help on that landlord-tenant problem." I tell you what, if we could go to that No Tell Motel and then we could, uh, I could help you out with the landlord. Well, I, a libertarian and Ayn Rand might say, "Go for it," you know. That, that, but California law says no. You may not do that. So what California, the bar is considering doing is, we're gonna absolutely have an all-out ban on sex between the lawyer and the client. And some people are not happy about it. They say that uh, you're invading their privacy. But others say, you know, the relationship between the lawyer and the client is kind of inherently unequal. And so any sexual relationship is potentially coercive. What happens to the the lawyer-client privilege?
2: In other words... Nobody should know about it if you're having sex with your client because that's private. Yeah, well, that's an argument,
0: you know, but I mean, the privilege relates to communications. Well, between... sometimes yeah. people talk yeah. during sex. <laughs> I, I guess you're right there, but, uh, you yeah, know, that, that's injecting a totally new issue. But bottom line is a lot of folks are worried about uh, this being an unva- uh, unjustified invasion of privacy.
1: I think uh, there's just a lot of jilted husbands who are behind this that are irritated that their wives slept with their divorce great attorney. Great
0: point. That's exactly. possible. And that's what exactly. this is about uh, that's possible because
1: that's the first place the wife goes to for revenge is the divorce lawyer
0: so lawyers who violate the regulations whatever they happen to be and they're subject to change uh if they violate them uh you could have a private censure all the way up to losing your your legal license uh so the state bar commission they have been spending months studying the issue of sex between clients well the and state lawyers. bar
2: really is an advocate for lawyer. i know it's a it's a it's for enforcing right. laws but but isn't it an advocate in other words. If this goes into effect and you are accused of having sex with a client, what are you going to do? You're going to hire a lawyer. So there's right. more work for lawyers. That's all it is. That's a
0: possible Is that too result? cynical? That's a little cynical, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the uh, what's happening next is they're going to look at all the, the situations around the country. Uh, uh, as of uh, last year, 17 states had already adopted a blanket sex ban. I don't know if that's a pun or not. A blanket sex ban that was drafted by the American Bar Association. Uh, and California's proposal does. Oh, this this will make you happy. There's an exception to this proposed rule. Really? If there was a pre-existing sexual relationship oh. before you started to be client and lawyer, then it's okay. So, oh, okay. yes. Yeah. All right. Could could you live with that uh, that special? I, I suppose. Yeah. So the uh, the problem is that people who have investigated complaints saying there there have been 205 complaints of misconduct under the current sex restriction, the one about, you know, you can't have sex for for legal services and so on. So it's a problem out there. Um, Oh, the current rule also forbids sex. This is a good rule. The current rule also forbids sex if it causes the lawyer to perform legal services incompetently. So I guess if he's so distracted (laughs) by by making sure that he's got Uh this good personal relationship, that he just can't do a good job as a lawyer, then you can't have sex with a client. So busy having sex, he'd have time to read the plea deal. (laughs) That's exactly right. So a bright line rule, people say, would give clarity to lawyers and remove the difficulty of proving that the sexual relationship was the result of coercion or negatively affected the lawyer's performance. Uh, One of the guys on the committee, Andrew surveys. He's chairman of the uh, San Diego Bar Association's Legal Ethics Committee. He says if we have a very flat guideline, it gets out of the area of subjectivity. Uh, Others disagree. There's a lawyer named uh, James Hamm. He's on this commission who's trying to redo the rule. Uh, He says no empirical or any reliable anecdotal evidence shows a ban is needed to protect the public or regulate the legal profession. Says, Proponents of a complete ban cannot articulate why a lawyer should be disciplined for sexual relations with a mature, intelligent, consenting adult mm-hmm. in the absence of any quid pro quo, coercion, intimidation, or yeah. undue influence. It's the Rob Marinko principle of lawyer-client Unless sex. Unless discipline is part of the relationship. I think that what they're going to do is they're going to adopt the rule that the other 17 states have, and they're going to say, you know what, it's too messy to try to get in, and, you know, figure out whether it was coercion. We're just going to say no, absolutely no. Yeah. I don't actually. I don't know what the deal is on doctors. Do isn't there a ban on doctor-patient sex? I think that's the
1: Hippocratic Oath. Okay, well, so there no. you go. I of course, should... there's some doctors that say no. I'm curing you.
0: Yeah, I suppose. The Hippocratic Oath is not to do harm. I think. Well, why should it be any different between the lawyers and the doctors, though? If the doctors can't have sex with their patients, why should the lawyers uh, have any uh, special privileges?
1: I think the lawyers, just for their own interest, wouldn't want to create anything that looks like a conflict of interest that could, you know, get them thrown out or disbarred.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I'm sorry, Rob. I'm I'm leaning toward getting rid of sex between uh, lawyers and clients. I'm very disappointed in you, Royal. And I think they'll spend more time working on their cases, you know. They won't be distracted. Mm -hmm.
1: With the lawyers on the clock, when they were doing these supposed successes, because that's
0: an expensive hour. You're right. Or minute. Six twenty-four. The time. Talk radio seven ninety KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre this week. Let's check the roads. Dependable traffic with our friend Bill Thomas. How are things looking, Bill? Six thirty-five. The time. Talk radio seven ninety KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre this holiday week. Hope you are having a great one. We are pleased to be joined by Jonah Jeremy Bob of the Jerusalem Post from Israel on a story that everybody's talking about. Uh, President Obama is getting a lot of heat for the decision to uh, go along with the Security Council uh, on a uh, two-state solution approach there in the Middle East. Uh, Welcome to the uh, program. Thanks for joining us this Tuesday morning. Glad to be back. Yeah, tell us, uh, tell us your take on this. Uh, I, I got to say, uh, it seems like not that many big substantive things happen in in that interval period between the election of a president and the inauguration. The the new president kind of hangs back and just sort of gets organized, uh, and and the, the outgoing president, you know, they work on pardons and things like that. But I mean, the uh, President Obama is not not going quietly, is he?
3: No, um, and there was complete complete shock in Israel. I mean, um, there's big disagreements in Israel between the left and the right about, um, you know, the peace process, what concessions should be made, can the Palestinian side be trusted. But on a U.N. resolution, which there was a tiny little bit of balance included, you know, to sort of give it that, uh, I don't know, sham of having some balance, but basically it was a one-sided condemnation of Israel for settlement activity. And there's debate about settlement activity within Israel, but to go to the U.N. at the end of a presidency and let a resolution like that go through the first since 1980 um, was a shock to Israel. And there's really nobody in Israel from right to left who's happy about it. It really was just considered something that um, you know, is, is damaging um, and is likely to make the Palestinians less likely to negotiate and more likely to just try to continue to pressure Israel from, uh, you know, the international side.
0: So give us the context. Uh, I mean, people have a general notion that um, folks who want a two-state solution are essentially saying, let's recognize the Palestinians, let's have a Palestine state, and, and people give Israel a hard time for not going along with that, but the president, the prime minister, says, hey, when they recognize our right to exist, which they don't, because they're always talking about destroying us and wiping us off the map, when they say we have a right to exist, then let's talk to state. You can have your state, and we can have ours, and we can work out the details. So th- that's the context, and and so now this resolution is essentially saying, you know, that the Western Wall, one of the holiest sites uh, to the Jewish people, that that uh, Israel is illegal illegally occupying it. It's really gotten Israel bent out of shape. Am I right?
3: Yeah, I mean, if this had been a resolution about this is our suggestion for how to move forward with peace, then you would have had a split in Israel. You know, the Israeli left would have said, we agree with part of it, we don't agree with part of it, and Israeli right, which is currently running the show and has been for the recent years, you know, would have been upset about part of it. Um, But... Uh, You know, a resolution which doesn't distinguish between the West Bank and uh, uh, East Jerusalem, which is very, you know, even in the Bill Clinton parameters, all the different peace negotiations that have happened, there are big distinctions there. All of the peace agreement proposals that have come about in the last 15 years have said Israel would be able to keep settlement blocks, um, which is on maybe, you know, five or seven percent of the land, the Palestinians would get, you know, 90-something percent of the West Bank, but Israel would get to keep the settlement blocks. The fact that those distinctions didn't come out here, either the settlement blocks or even Israeli rec- you know, recognition of Israeli sovereignty of the, uh, you know, the Western Wall, you know, all of it's just sort of like up in the air here. Um, and that, I think, is what really got, um, you know, hostility, you know, both from the left and the right side.
0: We're talking with Jonah Jeremy Baba, the uh, Jerusalem Post from Israel, and, of course, uh, discussing this uh, huge controversy in the Middle East over the U.N. Security Council. Uh, As I understand it, what we did was abstain, and so we didn't do anything to stop this uh, 14-0 to vote. Why was, it, why was it so lopsided? Why weren't uh, there any friends of Israel uh, among those 14 members of the Security Council? I know it, it rotates uh, to a degree. Is it it's just bad luck for Israel right now that, uh, that nobody uh, among those 14 other than the United States really counts themselves as a friend of Israel in this context?
3: Um, no. So, that, that is, you know, this is to be fair in setting the context. There's a lot of international criticism and even criticism within Israel, let's say from the left and even from the center, that even if the Palestinians aren't ready to cut a peace deal, and there are a lot of people who think that uh, Abu and the Palestinian Authority president, is not ready, um, that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hasn't gone far enough in showing at least that Israel is ready, that he hasn't put out his own proposals. He has clearly over and over again endorsed the two-state solution. He's talked about you know, working with Israel's moderate Arab allies, Egypt, Jordan, and some others, um, to do, like, a regional peace move. Um, But because he hasn't made concrete proposals, I think he and Israel, as a result, have lost a certain amount of credibility with some of our our, our very close friends. Um, And that's what I think happened here. I think um, even if there are allies on the Security Council besides the United States, you know, England, um, some would say Ukraine, some would say some other countries, possibly, you know, Senegal has had some good relations with Israel recently because uh, on the Israeli side, and again, I'd emphasize a lot of these countries would say there's a problem on the Palestinian side, but the fact that Israel hasn't put forward in a proactive way peace proposals for at least the Palestinians to reject, um, I think that maybe is why it was such a lopsided vote.
0: So let's look to the future. Uh, what can Trump do? I mean, is this reversible? I mean, this is just sort of a recommendation, a sense of the Security Council. Uh, I, I, is it something that, that Trump can, can uh, step in and, and really change the direction? Uh, or is Israel feeling that there's some something that, in terms of, uh, of this vote uh, that is something that he just can't undo?
3: Well, it doesn't change anything on the ground, right? At the end of the day, this was passed under what they call Chapter 6 of the U.N. Charter, and only Chapter Seven of the UN Charter is really let's call it more binding. Um, can lead to like immediate sanctions or something like that. So it can't force Israel's hand. At the end of the day, everybody knows that that Israel and uh, the Palestinians. You know, if there's a settlement, it's going to have to be between the two parties. It can't be completely imposed from the outside. Even the Obama administration in interviews was saying they don't expect this to force Israel to you know uh, do anything immediately. But in terms of international uh, law, in terms of sort of the international political setting, um, it's it set, meaning Trump would have to get all of the countries to vote to repeal it. So while, while he might, with control of the Congress and the United States, be able to repeal laws that President Obama passed, he's not really going to be able to repeal this U.N. resolution um, because you know, he's not going to have that pull with some of these other countries. What he can do is, you know, the United States is still the superpower. And geopolitically, he can try to maneuver things, um, you know, informally, country to country, um, more towards, you know, Israel being in a better position again. But in terms of the resolution itself, uh, he stuck with it.
0: We're chatting with Jonah Jeremy Bob of the Jerusalem Post. So the suspicion by some people is that Obama is basically pro-Palestine, that he wouldn't come out and admit it, but when it, you know you, you put Palestine on one side and Israel on the other, he's just no big friend of Israel. Is there a lot of suspicion along those lines in Israel? What's your take?
3: There's definitely suspicion along those lines in Israel. Um, I wouldn't go with that. I would say that Obama is a very complex character, Um he has, I can tell you, having interviewed top security officials in Israel when he said, when Obama says he's given better intelligence and security cooperation and funding than any previous administration, people give him top marks even when they're not on camera. Um, so there are a lot of things he's done for Israel. He's helped with Iron Dome. Up until this point, he had helped Israel at the U.N. a number of times. I, I think what's what's like more, more nuanced to say is that um, he's, as sympathetic to the Palestinian side as he is to the Israeli side, and that's very different for U.S. presidents in recent years. In recent years, you know, to the extent that the United States, that a president would be trying to be even-handed between Israel and the Palestinians would be in order to reach a deal, but really everybody knew there was a lot more sympathy emotionally connecting with the Israeli side, and I think Obama really was split between that, and when you compare that to other previous presidents, it certainly makes him look like a pro-Palestinian president, uh, in light of the things that he had, did do over the years to help Israel. I think it's simplistic to say that he's you know, pro-Palestinian, but compared to other U.S. presidents, um, probably you know, he, he's more on the spectrum. He's, he's much closer to the Palestinians than other presidents have been.
0: What was it, this, this whole personal thing between Obama and Netanyahu, it, it, do people know what the origin of that was? I mean, did they you know, insult each other at a dinner party seven years ago? It just seemed <laughs> like they really uh, didn't get along, and it manifested itself in big-time international geopolitical stuff.
3: Um, I think I think you're right. I think that they had a terrible, torrential relationship. Um, there were timing issues, trust issues, style issues, instances. You can read read through a lot of really good books written by diplomats on both sides, where each of them surprised and shocked each other and took it personally. Where maybe they could have each taken it as like a misunderstanding. Each of them, you know, every time sort of took it the worst. Um, and then on top of that, there are real, really, were real policy differences. You know, uh... Netanyahu is basically Israel's version of a Republican, and that is not a one-to-one identifying. Um, and Obama would be Israel's version of, you know, the Zionist Union Labor Party. Um, so they're sort of naturally, natural, I don't know, enemies, but rivals. Different ideologies about the world, the economy, peace. Um, very few things naturally in common personally very different styles they were stuck dealing with each other because the two countries have such great relations and have so much in common um but that was a big problem and that there is a hope there, there are some people who are nervous about trump also because of how unpredictable he is but there's a hope that at least on a personal level that uh... the trump netanyahu relationship, personal relationship will be a lot better and more stable
0: Well, it seemed like things really went south for Netanyahu and Obama over the Iran deal. I mean, the idea of of a foreign leader coming to the United States and giving this gigantic speech to a joint session of Congress, basically spitting in the eye of the president, making this huge persuasive case for this being a horrendous deal. I mean, I can't remember the last time something like that happened. So if there was any chance for a repair of the personal relationship, I would think that was just totally... Totally, totally ruptured. Um, what you mentioned the the predictability angle of Trump. I mean, and that's a fascinating point. I mean, here this guy comes in, and is he just clueless, or is he, or is he crazy like a fox? He calls up the the head of Taiwan totally turning upside down you know the the diplomatic niceties of the last 40 years where we're you know making nice with this giant prison camp of you know a couple of billion people in red china and turning our back on on a democratically elected totally friendly uh, ally in taiwan and he calls them and he just you know everybody's in in a tizzy then he starts talking about hey we got to boost our nuclear uh, arsenal when everybody's been saying for the last 30 40 years we've got to dismantle our nuclear arsenal. That's the whole idea from, from Reagan on. So with that as a background, do we even know which direction uh, that Trump is going to jig or jog on the Middle East?
3: I don't think anybody knows what Trump is going to do in a whole lot of issues. Uh, as you know, a lot of the policies he said were going to be surprises. Um, look, it's fair to say, as a general matter, he pointed, uh, you know, an ambassador to Israel, who has, a, who has a record of being supportive of uh, the settlements, um, and he's made a lot of statements uh, being much more unambiguously supportive of Israel than you know Obama was, and then even uh, some other presidents and presidential candidates have been. So I think overall um, he's going to be more in Israel's corner. At some point in his presidency, you might he surprised Israel suddenly with? Um, some sort of peace proposal that, uh, you know, and strong arming that uh, Israel might not uh, expect. I think you could see that at some point, right? His secretary of state is known as somebody who has very good relations with moderate Arab countries. Um, So um, I don't think anybody I've spoken to, you know, again, a number of top uh, officials who have been doing this, you know, for decades, Nobody really knows what Trump is going to do next. I'm not sure that he's completely decided that. I think... it's, it's, it's going to be something that everybody's going to be watching very closely.
0: We're talking about Jonah, Jeremy, Bob of the Jerusalem Post about the uh, Israel situation, specifically the uh, United Nations Security Council allowing to vote 14-0 to 0 against Israel on this uh, settlement issue. And, of course, the news is uh, President Obama, uh, he had his representative, um, his power uh, vote, uh, or just abstain from the vote. So, we talk about Trump being a question mark. I mean, what was it? Churchill's old line, something wrapped in an enigma inside a mystery. You got Rex Tillerson... Right. As a double mystery, I mean, the head of Exxon is going to be the Secretary of State. Uh, we know how cozy he is with Putin, and you know, putting together the big deals, and he gets the in the order of the of the honorable Russian. Do we know anything about how Tillerson is going to tilt in terms of the Middle East? Because I would think, with Trump not exactly being you know this this foreign policy maven over the course of his life, he's a real estate builder, but he's not exactly a foreign policy guy. I would think Tillerson would be in a position to sort of nudge him in one direction or the other. Do we? Have Any idea where he stands on these thorny Middle East issues?
3: Um, We don't in any sort of explicit way because, as as you said, he's been with Exxon the whole time. He's never been a public uh, servant, so he hasn't had to go on record. But um, that's one of the points where Israelis are absolutely nervous. They're nervous about Tillerson. They're nervous about how close he's been to um, to Arab countries, to Russia, Um, and um, that's— that's one of the reasons. I think people would have been nervous about Trump, his unpredictability, his um, spontaneity. Anyway, um, but that Tillerson is one of the sources where people are nervous because at the end of the day, um, who's going to make foreign policy in the Middle East? Is it going to be an ambassador to Israel or the Secretary of State? It's obviously going to be between the two of them, the Secretary of State. So if Tillerson has views in certain areas that are closer to some Arab countries or Russia than they are to Israel. Israel isn't gonna like that very much and we'll hope that you know, Trump will overrule him and he'll go to wherever Trump is. Um, but that's that absolutely a source of concern in Israel.
0: What about the idea that people look at Israel from the United States standpoint and they say, okay, we love them, they're they're a big ally of ours, but you know what? There's some baggage here. I mean, this part of the world is on fire. And a lot of people believe that a lot of bad things happen in the world in terms of terrorism and anti-American uprisings because all of these hundreds of millions of folks surrounding Israel who are their sworn enemies are really ticked off at the fact that the United States propagates some up do you, do you see any kind of pressure against strong support for Israel along those lines manifesting itself in, 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 a, in a real result in the Trump administration or do you think Trump is going to stand firm and continue uh, to be the kind of historical friend of Israel that we've been for the last 50 60 years
3: again I'm not gonna, I'm not going to make specific predictions about Trump what I will say is that any American president who has even temporarily for a period of months, try to ignore the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the Middle East have a way of forcing <laughs> any president to reconcentrate on it. There are enough, you know, explosions and sudden emergency situations that are just not ignorable, um, and suddenly presidents who put it as a low priority have to make it a high priority. So I, I just don't think with what happens in the Middle East. And I can't tell you what the next emergency is going to be. Is it going to be the current, uh, they call it the knife and blowing up more? Is it going to be another war between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, between Israel and Hezbollah and Lebanon? It's hard to say, but everybody is predicting, you know, one of those three or some other crisis, you know, like that. And when it happens, whether the U.S. president likes it or not, they're going to have to be involved.
0: All right, Jonah, Jeremy, Bob of the Jerusalem Post, thank you so much for sorting out this uh, really muddled and complex issue. We appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. 6.54 here on Talk Radio 790-K-A-B-C. Hey, the Kings play here Wednesday at 6.30 as they take on the Vancouver Canucks with Nick Nixon and Daryl Evans on the call. Kings versus Canucks Wednesday at 6.30 on the home of the Kings 790-K-A-B-C. When we come back, a teenager who, shall we say, abused the 911 system. You don't want to miss that. And you don't want to miss traffic with our friend Bill Thomas. How are things looking? 706 The Time, Talk Radio, 790-K-A-B-C, Royal Oaks, in McIntyre. Happy Tuesday to you all. So I guess I owe you a big apology, Rob Marinko. About time. Well, Randy kind of picked up on it there. I, I was kind of teasing the next story. and yeah. I said, coming up, fake news, and guess then you the next right thing the news. is Rob Marinko with the news. That's great. Who, who knew that, you know, it would work out that way? I, I guess I should have seen it coming, you know? I yeah, think I was uh, Scott Pelly for yeah. God's sakes. <laughs> uh, so you're not impressed with Mister Pelly. Mr. Pelley, uh, Wolf Blitzer, Brian, uh, Williams, Brian Williams. You know, I'd they just the don't have the impact these anchors used to have. Like Tom Brokaw it used to be when you'd say Tom Brokaw or, you know, in back in the Mesozoic era, uh, Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite yeah. Everybody knew who you're talking. Now, I don't know that that many people know Scott Pelly's is a CBS anchor every night. Yeah, you know? exactly. We knew Katie Couric when she was sure. Her. The first, I uh, guess she wasn't the first anchor. Uh, Barbara Walters anchored the news. Certainly, yeah. di- certainly Diane Sawyer and so on. But uh, no, we know, Rob, that you did not traffic in fake news. No, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, but it's, it, it is an issue. I mean, we've been hearing the last several weeks that fake news is a problem. I don't know how big a problem it is though, because you know when people listen to stations like this and and watch network uh, programs. I think they know it isn't a bunch of hoaxes. Uh, I mean, why is it a real serious issue that there are some sites out there? I mean, the New York Times has been reporting on the fact that uh, Snopes, for example, is the fact-checking website. But we've been talking about the fact that Snopes kind of has their own agenda. Uh, I mean, they're sort of a progressive group. I don't think there's much doubt about that. And
1: the New York Times has been guilty of fake stories this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you pick up the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, I don't know how often the stories are actually fake, but I'm here to tell you, you know, I read uh, you know, bits and pieces of, of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, uh, Daily News every morning. I consistently see nothing but a, a, a force-fed diet from the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times of their social agenda. Well, look, it, 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 we saw
2: a great example of it during the campaign there's a how often did we see or read in the papers no path to the, the nomination no right. path to 270 no path this no path trump didn't have a chance all the polls show he's losing so not necessarily fake news but definitely not accurate news
1: well that's not that, even news that's just opinion punditry and somehow that made the headlines. somehow that gets to a newspaper you right and it gets spread all over the world a more recent example of Fake news that tugged at everybody's heartstrings So we found out it wasn't even a real story was the Santa Claus that said he visited the five-year-old kid that was dying of cancer. Oh, right, right. Everybody picked that up. The New York Times, every national news. Turns out never happened, was never verified. It was one story from the Knoxville Journal that was not verified, and everyone ran with it.
0: Well, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have a, a, a lot of, of wrong stuff, fake news. When you ha- have everybody awash in media input, it's basically 24-7. I mean, our lives have, have been totally changed over the last decade or so. I mean, take Wikipedia, for example. I don't understand how Wikipedia isn't constantly filled with crap because, as I understand it, Anybody can go on and edit anything anytime they want. You want to edit General Electric's website and put in there that, you know, uh, aliens from from Venus are running General Electric? You could do it. Now, it's going to... How how many people are sitting around ready to airbrush that stuff out, and yet it doesn't really happen? I mean, how, how many times have you gone onto Wikipedia and seen something that's you know, wrong or homophobic or racist? Right. or I right, right. I never see it. How how can that be if everybody has the opportunity to edit it?
2: Because there's more people that know what's wrong, and you're able to correct or edit it. But yeah. uh, you look back just a few weeks ago, and i, I got to go back to the, the politics nonsense. Uh, Donald Trump was accused of kidnapping and raping a 13-year-old girl and tying her to a bed. Wow. And that was in the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, you know, come on. So what happened? It just went away.
0: So here's some examples of the stuff that uh, Snopes.com, this fact-checking website, is looking into. Did Donald Trump uh, say on Twitter that he planned to arrest Saturday Night Live star Alec Baldwin for sedition? Has Hillary Clinton (laughs) quietly filed for divorce? Was Mr. Trump giving Kanye West a cabinet position was Alan <laughs> thick, the star of growing pains really dead. Uh-huh. And of course, the uh, Snopes would tell you that it's all untrue except for the demise of, of Mr. Thick. But I mean, these kinds of things, uh, those are, those are just, you know, for, for years, remember they had these urban legends, you know, like are there alligators in the New York sewers and so on. Um, you know that that's that's nice that people can clarify these factual questions. Sure, but it's a shame when when the the agenda uh, of one side or another is able to get in there. I mean, right. Rush Limbaugh and and uh, and uh, Laura Ingram were weighing mm-hmm. in on this. He was. He was saying that uh, the fake news is the everyday news in the mainstream media. They just make it up. Laura Ingram. Well, they uh, w-
1: totally make it up. Remember the Washington Post where they do those Pinocchios with their fact-checking? And they said Hillary Clinton was the most honest candidate of all time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Laura Ingram's uh, quote of note was that the left refuses to admit that the fundamental problem isn't the Russians or Jim Comey or fake news or the Electoral College. Fake news is just another a fake excuse for their failed agenda. I mean, the bottom line is that the vast majority of media outlets are definitely left of center. They have a progressive orientation. And so when people rag on Fox News for being so conservative, well, of course, they're conservative especially the commentators sean sean hannity and so on but even if some of it seeps into the news coverage i mean a lot of it seeps into the news coverage for for the networks oh sure and you know it's you know
2: in comparison anything's more conservative because if you're if you're it's somewhere in the middle you're going to be more conservative than ABC, NBC, and CBS and all the other networks.
0: Yeah. No, I think the fake news thing is something that people enjoy talking about right now. And, of course, it's interesting that you have these Snopes-type websites. What would be nice would be if you had some websites that that are that are fact checkers that are either absolutely objective in the middle or maybe right-winged to sort of to uh, to counteract the snopes because right now I don't know if people who are right of center really have any place they can go to uh, to have the same kind of uh, uh, su- support or information that you would get uh, from going going to Snopes. Yeah, you could.
2: Uh, I'll bet right now, right this second, we could write a question for Snopes, and and the question would be, is Hillary Clinton honest? And there'd be a couple of paragraphs explaining how she's not dishonest. Yep. you know, it's it's just ridiculous. It's all skewed. It really is. As long as human beings are
0: doing it, it's going to be skewed. Yep. Well, everything will be fine when Trump takes over. Exactly. Yes. Hey, with the holidays upon us, we thank you for choosing 790KBC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities that you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Jillian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 crew. For enlightening, relevant news and compelling, entertaining talk, News Talk Evolved 790-K-A-B-C. Well, one of the big issues that's going to be on the front burner, you know, we've heard day one, first thing that Trump's going to do, repeal Obamacare, get rid of it. It is on the docket, and people are wondering, well, what exactly is that going to mean? You know, the Republicans have tried for years, scores of times, to repeal and replace Obamacare, and it was, of course, always futile because the president was poised with his veto pen. To help us figure this out, we've got uh, Ovec Roy of Forbes magazine. Welcome to KBC. How are you today?
4: Hey, I'm doing fine, by the way. If your listeners are looking for high-quality journalism from a center-right point of view, go to Forbes.com slash opinion. We do a great job, I would argue.
0: You know, that was the fastest plug uh, I've, uh, I've ever seen. I've got to why compliment you. I've never right out of the box. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got a jingle, a theme song, fire fire it up. I've got to work
4: on that. Maybe you can help me with that.
0: Well, Forbes is great. I mean, you know, when you see the stuff that, that you guys do on Fox News on the weekend with Steve Forbes there, and yeah, you know, he's got a, a a position, but it's refreshing to see, you know, it's like a drop of, it's like a, a drop of ink in a swimming pool because this this entire media swimming pool that we're all floating around in by and large is very liberal when they when they do studies about well where do college professors stand politically, where do reporters stand politically? There's no debate. It's like 80 or 90% they're on the progressive side. And, you know, talk about the hand that rocks the cradle, controls the world. These are the people that are feeding our kids every single day... Teachers, professors, ri- reporters who provide the news—it's a steady stream. I, it's surprising that anybody's a Republican in this society when you, because you don't see too many shows like the Forbes Show on Fox on the weekend with with people giving uh, the the other side of the story. So uh,
4: again, we. It's not just Steve Forbes. You know, we've got at the on the website at Forbes.com, we have 140 of the best conservative think tank scholars that are out there writing about health care, about tax policy, about foreign policy. Um, and I would, again, encourage your listeners to, to take a look and, and see what they find. I think you'll find a lot of thoughtful commentary on all the areas of policy that, uh, that the new Republican government will be working on. And healthcare is obviously at the top of the list.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, frankly, I mean, I, I'm familiar with like, National Review Online and so on. But, but you're right. I don't think too many people think about Forbes as, as an outlet for an alternative uh, viewpoint. Uh, I guess I can't use that word alternative. It's too close to art. Uh, alt now, so uh, <laughs> g- got to be careful. So uh, we're talking with Ovik Roy of Forbes, and, and we wanted to check in with him because of uh, this Obamacare thing. I mean, you know, we were we were actually joking earlier, uh, Ovik, about how people get all lathered up about national politics and Trump when, in fact— You know, what really affects your life the most are are really local issues, local politics. And that, that may be generally true. But when it comes to Obamacare, this actually hits home. I mean, when we see the specter of people in western europe and in canada living with literal physical pain for years or scrambling across the border so they can somehow get an operation now instead of oh i don't know two years to get rid of chronic pain because low quality rationing shortages that's what happens when you get socialized medicine and that's what Obama was trying to ram down our throat with this weird disguised, oh, well, it's not single-payer, it's not socialized medicine, it's just, oh, this is it, everybody will buy a policy, it'll be a really good policy, it'll have all sorts of stuff that you really need at ridiculous prices, and now, of course, it's imploding, and we were so worried that, well, his not-so-secret agenda, because we have Obama on tape from before he was president saying, single-payer's the way to go, pal. I just can't get it passed politically. We figured that his secret agenda was, hey, if it works, fine. It's got my name on it. If it doesn't work, then damn it, we got socialized medicine, you know, like it or not, to quote Gavin Newsom. What's your take on what the Republicans can do to repeal and replace Obamacare without stepping on some kind of landmine where you take goodies away from people that you already gave them?
4: Well, a couple of points. one, We've had single-payer health care in America for at least 50 years. It's called Medicare and Medicaid. And the VA. Bernie Sanders talks about Medicare for all because Medicare is a single-payer health care program. Now, in the 80s and 90s, uh, Republican presidents introduced some reforms of Medicare so that you could have the option of choosing private plans to administer your Medicare benefit. But Medicare was designed from the beginning by LBJ to be single payer health care for the elderly. Right. So there are lots, of, you know, there are almost 100 million Americans already on single payer health care. And yes, Obamacare did expand the number of people who are on government run health insurance. Uh, but let's not, let's not think that Obamacare was the introducer of single payer health care in America. That's been going on for a very, very long time. And so what can you do about it? Well, there's a lot you can do about it. At my uh, new think tank, and I'm going to give you another plug now, so brace yourselves. down. At my sitting new down. think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we mm-hmm. published a whole plan called Transcending Obamacare. That's about not just taking Obamacare, but Medicare and Medicaid and the rest of the government-run health care. Now, where
0: systems. do we see this? What's your website?
4: The website is freeop.org, F is in Frank, F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G. And you just click on the link that says Transcending Obamacare. There's an article there called... Uh, understanding transcending Obamacare in a free ops replacement plan for Obamacare in 10 minutes or less. And okay. it summarizes exactly how to get there. And the point is, you can do all the things that Obamacare claims to do, cover people with pre-existing conditions, cover the uninsured, but do it in a way that puts patients and consumers in charge of their own health care dollars instead of the government or insurance companies.
0: And it does this plan, in putting the patients in control, and giving the freedom. Does it also give them a little skin in the game? Because to me, it seems like the real flaw in, in the healthcare delivery system from back in World War II days when, okay, wage and price controls were in, we can't increase the wages, so we'll give them something free instead. We'll give them some health health insurance to circumvent the wage and price controls. And so people right. got used to having, oh, free care and, you know, I, I guess I can have all the care I want because I'm insured and so on. And they weren't consumers. It wasn't like, I'm going to buy bread or I'm going to buy a Buick. I'm going to shop and get the best bread or Buick at the lowest possible price at the quality I want. Nobody does that on health care. They go to the hospital and they get their $10 aspirin. Does your solution give a little skin in the game to, to consumers or are we allergic to that now?
4: Not just a little, a lot. So the whole point of the plan is to do exactly what you've described, to move away from this Great Society New Deal era system in which You don't control your own health care dollars the way you control the dollars you spend on an automobile or your house or food or anything else, smartphones, right? We do all those things. We buy all those things ourselves. We buy auto insurance. We buy life insurance. We buy homeowner's insurance. We do all that ourselves. We don't expect to get it from the government. We don't expect to get it from our employer. And the more we can gradually move, it has to be gradual, but the more we can gradually move in that direction over time, over a 10, 20, 30, 40-year period, we can get to a point where, again, patients and consumers control their health care dollars. You can't do it overnight, because the system we have today was built over 50, 80 years, and people are used to it. So you've got to give people the option of opting out of what they don't like about today's system and having more control over those dollars. And over time, if you and I are right, and people prefer having control of their own health care dollars. More and more people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, will choose that approach and will have a more affordable, higher-quality system in which the patient comes first instead of the government.
0: We're talking with Ovik Roy of Forbes about how to repeal and replace Obamacare. You know, the, the problem I see, Ovik, is that, I mean, let's face it, everything that's come along, whether it's Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, once you give goodies out is politically unpalatable to, to you know, claw it back in any respect. Now, here we've got Obamacare, which is essentially, okay, people don't like the fact that they're being bullied and you've got to buy insurance and it's got to be these clauses, but it is basically free if you're low income because of the subsidies. So how do you avoid the political pushback of making it look like the repeal is taking something away from folks?
4: Well, I don't think the argument should be take, away, take things away from people. I think the argument should be government-run health care isn't good health care. And if you give people more control of their own health care dollars, the quality of that health care will be better. I actually think it's okay to have a safety net to make sure that poor and vulnerable people have health care. We spend – the government in the United States, state, local, federal combined – we spend about $1.5 trillion a year – subsidizing health care that's more than on a per capita basis that's more than almost any other country in the world we already have government-run health care in america so we have enough money sloshing around the government coffers to make sure that everyone has adequate health care the problem is that we spend that money so incredibly inefficiently uh, that we don't actually serve the people who need the help so uh, the, the, the it's not an either or you know if you look at things like smartphones t- televisions cars food we don't say, well, you need more government to make sure that every American has right. clothing or Amer- every American has a smartphone, every American has enough food on the table. Free markets deliver those services, those goods, at a much lower cost and a much higher quality than the government does. The same can be true of healthcare if we only let it. So we shouldn't cede that argument about outcomes to the left. Free markets can do more to deliver high-quality health care to more people, especially the poor the government
0: can. All right, Ovik Roy of Forbes. Tell us again, is that freopp.gov? Is that the website? Dot, dot, dot .org, it's a think tank,
4: freopp.org. It's a, a, the website for the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity.
0: Gotcha. Folks, you got to check that out. Uh, I think it will change people's thinking about this vitally important issue. You, uh, You have a great holiday week here and appreciate hey, you your help. Thanks a lot. All right, the time, 724, talk radio, 790K ABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back? One rude FedEx driver you're going to want to hear about, but a very polite man now, Bill Thomas, with info on the traffic. 737, the time, talk radio, 790K ABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre this week. Happy Tuesday to you all. hope you're... Enjoying a nice, relaxing, stress-free week between Christmas and Hanukkah on the one hand and New Year's on the other. I think I I read, Rob Marinko, this is one of only four or five times in the last century when Hanukkah and Christmas fall on the exact same day.
2: Yeah, I I heard that was the same thing, so so it's a little bit unusual.
0: uh, Yeah, so it was just a wonderful time of the Mm -hmm. year when everybody can kind of kick back. But we've got a story we want to follow up on that uh, is anything but wonderful, and that's the, the tragedy up in Oakland that killed 36 people in that uh, ghost ship building. And, uh, of course, uh, as you can imagine, uh, investigations are ongoing, lawsuits are being filed. And we have on the line Mary Alexander. She is a lawyer who represents relatives killed uh, in uh, of the uh, victims of the Oakland fire. Uh, Mary Alexander, welcome to KBC. Thank you for uh, being on with us.
5: Good morning. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, gosh, uh, what a what a horrendous situation! The, the death toll, as I understand, is the thirty six people, and uh, I I don't have information on the number of injured. But maybe you have uh, have heard uh, numbers on that. Do you know?
5: There aren't many people injured. It was either people got out wow. and were basically okay, or they died inside in this inferno.
0: So. I know that you're involved in litigation. I imagine uh, uh, others are as well. Maybe we can just back up because I've uh, I've read about this, but I just haven't heard very many illuminating details. Um, Apparently, it was a 10,000-square-foot building. It was just this jungle and jumble of makeshift stairs and and, and room dividers, and there weren't any clear exit plans. And and was it up on the second floor where where folks were congregated and uh, and the, the fires began?
5: It was up on the second floor, but when you use that term loosely, it was kind of a jerry-rigged uh, second floor that mm-hmm. had been built into this uh, warehouse that was permitted only for a, to be a warehouse and not to have people living there or to hold large events like this. And the stairs up to the second floor were makeshift stairs of wooden pallets. And so when this fire broke out, there was no safe way for the people to get out, and uh, most of those that uh, died were up on the second floor. They were people who had come to hear this music event. The uh, the building had no fire alarms, no smoke detectors, no overhead sprinklers, no exit signs or emergency lighting, no safe way. For people to get out. I mean, how does this happen? Out.
0: This sounds like some sort of uh, 1800s, third world, uh, totally unregulated, uh, no thought for safety. I mean, this is in a big metropolitan area. How, how does this happen?
5: It is absolutely reprehensible that uh, to let people uh, live there or gather uh, in this kind of a, a situation, it was a death trap. And there were complaints prior, uh, complaints about <clears throat> The lot next door where there, there, there was garbage was owned by the same owner. The owner owns all the buildings in that block. In October 2014, there was an inspection for, quote, illegal housing, unquote. Uh, then in November, just November 13th, before this incident on December 2nd, there was a complaint to the city about blight and unpermitted interior construction. And the Department of Building Inspection went out on November 17th. Uh, 2016, just uh, uh, two weeks before this incident, and didn't do anything, uh, claimed they couldn't get in. Well, it if, so it sounds like the, the city, city, city has some responsibility. And shut, shut the building down. That's never what would have happened.
0: So now, who is it that you are representing? Uh, are you representing the families of some of the folks who died? Uh, are you representing any of the survivors, or what's your situation?
5: We have filed the first two lawsuits for the parents of uh, Michaela Gregory, who was a beautiful young woman. She was the second youngest. She was 20. And uh, she was a college student working two jobs um, and getting straight A's. And she was there with her boyfriend from a high school sweetheart. Five years they'd been together, and they died in each other's arms with him trying to protect her.
0: Oh, wow. We're talking with Mary Alexander, lawyer who represents uh, a family, uh, families of folks who died in this Oakland fire where 36 people were killed. So I assume that you're you're training your legal efforts on the owner of the building. I've read that there there was a chief tenant who might have responsibility. You mentioned this. I mean, are you are you naming uh, government entities who, as you say, were in a position to inspect and do something and they and they dropped the ball Uh, promoters of 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 the event? Are all of these folks rolled in as defendants?
5: There. Yes, there are many uh, players here, the owners of the building, first of all. And then there was a. Manager, a person who rented out the spaces and built the stairs and and allowed this kind of place to exist. And then there are uh, two people who ran the business next door uh, that allowed the electricity to come through with wires. They cut a hole in the wall, and uh, electricity came into the warehouse and uh, contributed to this maze of wires that was in the building. And then there were promoters for the event that night, and uh, including the person who was putting on the on the show, that invited uh, over 100 people uh, to come uh, via the promotion and social media. And there were uh, at least 100 people there at the time that this, uh,
2: this fire inferno broke out. Mary, I'm, I'm curious here. Obviously, you're representing folks in a civil case, and the criminal investigation is ongoing. But I've got to ask you, are you prepared for the other side and the other lawyers possibly arguing that the people that went in there that night should have at least been somewhat aware of the conditions? In other words... You know, I'm, I myself, I'm not a fireman or a safety expert, but if I walk into a building where the stairs are made of pallets, it's crowded, it's a hoarding situation by all accounts, there's wires exposed and such, don't you think there is some responsibility on the victims, at least to the point where they walked in and decided to stay?
5: Well, you know, I think that people think it's going to be safe. Even you were surprised when I was telling you about this building had nothing. I think there's sort of, uh, in this day and age, in today's world, you expect that if there's going to be an event, then they're inviting people in, that it's going to be safe and there's a way to get out if a fire breaks out. Um, Having said that, I think defendants try to blame the victims uh, all the time, and so that may very well happen, but I think that people have a right to expect safety. And here we had a total disregard for the safety of the public at, that allowed this death trap to occur. And uh, they had a duty to, to warn people and warn the public, uh, the city did, and this was just a disaster waiting to happen. Mary, I
0: think there may have been some confusion there. That was a newsman Rob Marenko asking that question. This is Royal Oaks. The easy way, I guess, is if you hear something lucid or clever, that would be me and if something else is said, <laughs> I, I think that probably would be would be Rob. So, Mary, what about the status? Rob raised a good point about the criminal charge. What about the status of criminal charges? Is uh, are, are have people already been charged, or are they still poking around figuring out who might be uh, criminally liable?
5: Well, there is the manager that I mentioned, Derek Almina, and uh, that uh, has, uh, as I understand, has always already been charged for. Uh, and or at least they're uh, about to for renting out these places and allowing it to uh, be in this kind of condition. He actually lived there with his wife and uh, three children, so, yeah, so I'm sure a lot well of, aware a lot of, of what the lot condition was.
0: Might be looking at charges. Hey, uh, last question, insurance coverage, not to be crass, but I, I remember uh, uh, Great White, the band, uh, they're playing at the station uh, nightclub in Providence, Rhode Island. Fifteen years ago, 100 people died when the pyrotechnics uh, caused a huge fire. And insurance was the huge thing to, to try to help folks out. And there were lots of deep pockets in that case, you know, the band and the managers and the owner and the and the tenants and so on. What about here? What's this, What's the situation in terms of insurance?
5: Well, we're going to be investigating that. We don't know all that yet, um, and we'll have to see. This is the uh, second-worst inferno fire since uh, Rhode Island, but we'll be looking into it, and what we're looking for is justice for these families Um including I'm also representing the family of Griffin Madden, who was 23 and perished in the fire, a Berkeley graduate from 2015. And what these families uh, want is justice for their loved ones.
0: All right, Mary Alexander, lawyer up there in Oakland, Uh, good luck to you, and thank you for joining us on this Tuesday morning.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Take care. 747 The Time, Talk Radio 790-K-A-B-C, Royal Inn for Doug and Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the freeways? 806 The Time, Talk Radio 790-K-ABC-Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre this week. And we are delighted to welcome back our friend uh, Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent for Inside Edition. Good morning, Jim. Merry Christmas to you
6: same to you. Now I know how you spend your Christmas vacation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This, uh, what, what could be more fun? <laughs> Hanging out with uh, Rob Marinko and Randy Wang here, and uh, not to forget uh, Bill Thomas. Hey, Jim, Jim. Um, by the way, Jim Murray uh, is also an author, in addition to being an esteemed uh, reporter for Inside Edition and uh, lawyer. He has written The Last Day of My Life, I would think that would be a good Hanukkah present, wouldn't you say, Jim, if, if you went on Amazon.com? Yes, yeah, sure it would. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a, the last day of my life. It's a terrific book, Rob Marinko. Uh, before we talk about George Michael, because I know that uh, that you reported on George Michael extensively and, and just such a, that's just a sad loss. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to get your advice, Jim Murray, about about a yep. Brian Cranston issue. I just finished his book, A Life in Parts. I don't know if you've read it. I'm not yet it's really good I mean this guy is a marvelous writer and I mean I'm no actor Terrific but just, actor oh too. An amazing actor and and he has written about the craft of acting telling his life story and he and I grew up about six blocks from each other in Canoga Park uh, and he of course went on to greatness and and uh, so did you. Uh, well, thanks in my own special way. Not I today. Appreci- I appreciate <laughs> <laughs> Not today, huh? But anyway, so I thought, gosh, let's get Brian Cranston on. I'm hosting some shows here for Doug this week. Let's get him on. And mm. I'm telling you, Jim Murray, it looked good for a while because we actually have somebody uh, you know, on staff here with a, sort of a cousin relationship with, with Brian's wife. And so we, we reached out and we got good news. Mm. Uh, yeah, Brian's wife said, oh my gosh, this is would be wonderful to, to have him on KBC. I mean, Basically sitting around in his underwear, you know, he shaved his head like Walter White, wearing that pork pie hat and waiting for the phone to ring. Nothing's really going. It'll be wonderful. And then somebody mentioned, oh, yeah, you know, Royal will be in for Doug. And she said, oh, just a minute. Uh Uh-huh. And then she came back. He slammed He'd love to You're come kidding. on. Oh, yeah. No. So, now here we have Jim Murray, Rob Marinko. Jim knows people true. in That's show true. business. He does. Jim knows everybody. Jim, if you could maybe put in a good word for us with Bry, because, you know, I think it would be a great ge- guest to talk about a life in parts. His new movie is out, Why Him, uh, with Franco. Now, I've read, you know, mm. not incredible ratings yet on oh, Rotten no, Tomatoes. Know, uh, two, two of my friends taught.
6: They, they laughed... For about
0: an hour and a half. Oh okay then I'm absolutely going to see it. I was going to see it anyway, but I was a little discouraged because some of the some of the ratings came in less than 100%. It's just a fun
6: silly movie, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, there's it,
0: nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. No, no. So anyway, the point is you know, uh, we we just got to get him on the show. So if there's any way you can pull strings, are Jim you telling
6: I, me he doesn't like Royal Oaks? Is that what you're saying?
0: Uh, they made it as clear as they conceivably no. could. Uh, you, you, know. you know
6: what? Brian Cranston is a really decent guy. I've interviewed him many times, and and. You know, he's the kind of guy who remembers your name and you think gosh, yeah, how could he remember me? Here, and he's very, <laughs> very gracious, really
0: is. Oh, I, I I believe it. I mean, having read his book, you get kind of an insight and I is it's kind of a book where you say to yourself, that wasn't some ghostwriter. That was Brian Cranston telling his story. And I mean the, the Breaking Bad story was just so amazing. And I don't know if you will you'll, you'll learn about it when you read the book. The way he got this the part of Walter White and Breaking Bad about 15 years before he'd had a, a, just a one-shot deal on the X-Files and Vince Gilligan was involved in X-Files and Vince Gilligan remembered Brian Cranston and knew how great he was in, in just a one-shot deal and so Vince Gilligan is fighting for Cranston to be Walter White and the network guys are saying are you kidding? He's the goofy dad on Malcolm in the Middle you know why would we take a chance and Gilligan said he is an actor you're going to love him and you know the rest is history he was just in one of the most one of the most terrific shows in television history
1: you know
6: i read that he based that walter white character on somebody who grew up about six blocks from him in canoga park
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i i hope you know he's thinking about the chemistry professor part as opposed to the myth oh, right, right, kingpin. Right, that's right that's right I my mean, mistake
6: yeah my he's, mistake. he's
0: mis- mr escobar anyway we'll just we'll <laughs> see if something can happen on that front so Jim Murray, we're talking about Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition. Um tell us about uh, George Michael. I know you reported on his life. I mean, what an amazing uh sort of a reinvention, kind of like Justin Timberlake, a, a pop superstar in the 80s, really young, incredibly successful, you know, bumps in the road, but still a superstar for decades and now and now tragedy. Uh, tell us your impressions.
6: Well, you, I only interviewed him once and it turned out to be one of the most significant interviews I've ever done, and I think an important one for him as well. It was 1998 in April, less than a week after he was arrested in a men's room at a Beverly Hills park for lewd behavior. Mm-hmm. And he ended up pleading guilty, I think it was a $50 fine, 80 hours of community service. But he came on to CNN, I was with CNN at the time, and we were trying to land the interview uh, alongside Dateline. And we got it because we agreed to air it live to tape Friday night u.s. and that meant it would air internationally on saturday and dateline was i think going to air the following day as it turns out and we didn't know this at the time the british tabloids uh, george michael believed were going to out him on sunday right. as gay and he wanted to do this on his own terms rather wow. than let them do it. So I didn't realize it at the time but that's what the that's what his view of the interview is going to be. Now, he came alone to our studios. And 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 you have to understand, you talk about a superstar. This guy was huge. He showed up alone. No, yeah, handling, without no an problem.
0: entourage. That must no have been entourage. a shock.
6: And and the other thing that was shocking was he was timid and nervous and shy and very polite, very nice man. He was so nervous. So I sat with him in the green room for about an hour, talked it through. I said, look, I'm not here to persecute you. I'm not here to prosecute you. This is a conversation. We're not going to beat you up. <clears throat> you will leave here hopefully feeling better than you did when you got here. And we, we, we agreed to do a live-to-tape meaning We would not edit the interview, but it wasn't going to air live. It was just going to air in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And we started the interview. And he was so nervous that I actually stopped the interview and I said, "Let's let's turn the cameras off. Go in the other room. Talk for a bit more." Then we sat down again, started it up, and he was—he he had a great sense of humor. He was candid, open honest, and he came out as gay. And what, what he really wanted to make a couple of points. One was he knew that many of his fans were young girls, and he wanted to let them know that he wasn't lying to them, he wasn't trying to fool them or hide anything, that the songs that he had written that they believed were about young girls were about girls, and, and that he didn't realize his own sexuality until he was about 27. We did the interview when I think he was about 34. And he apologized to his fans for his stupidity and getting picked up in this um, uh, men's room at a at a park. He was embarrassed. He was contrite, and and you know he he, he was a really good, decent person. And and I I felt. Uh, I, that it was really a powerful interview for me. It stayed with me for years. Frankly, it stayed with me till till he passed because I, I always rooted for him. I always liked him. I always thought he was one of the good guys. And and I know that he seemed tortured for parts of his life. You know, he had he had battles with uh, uh, with drugs and and he had a couple of high profile arrests. But he always seemed. To be a good-hearted person and and i think that came through in his work
0: we're talking with jim Moray, chief correspondent for inside edition wow what a great opportunity to communicate with another human being and and as you see it's just a one-shot deal I mean, I mean you you probably got more information from him felt closer to him than people who'd known him for decades just because you know, you know what
6: meant a lot to me royal and you can appreciate this you you interview people and you've been interviewed um months later i, I became friendly with elton john through a couple of interviews and he said to me, he was very close with George Michael, and he told me how much it meant to George Michael that I had treated him with respect. And that meant more to me than anything, really, because, you know, I, I, I didn't go into journalism to, to, to beat people up or to out them or, or to denigrate them. Uh, you know, I, you and I try to tell people what's going on, be honest, truthful, maybe candid, sometimes funny. Um, and that really meant more to me, and I'm so proud of that interview, and I'm proud that, that he was able to do things on his own terms. He felt he was backed against the wall, obviously, because of his own actions, but at least he got to say what he wanted to say rather than be outed by, by a tabloid, and, and that really meant the world
0: to me. It must have been frustrating, in a way, for you to see his life unfold after that, ha- having had that, that brief personal connection. Because, I mean, you, you alluded to it. I mean, I was reading recently, he had severe depression. His mother and his lover died very close in time. He had not only the Beverly Hills arrest, but, you know, drug arrests for marijuana, multiple DUIs. He fell from a moving car and had, had a head injury. I mean... Just kind of a troubled life. I was just reading the other day that people are saying, you know, you had this secret heroin issue. Who knows? There, you know, people could be making stuff up or, or exaggerating. And yet through it all, I mean, I, I mentioned to me it was kind of like Justin Timberlake where where you start out and you're just this this exploding star. And then you stay in the public mind. You don't just go away Rick, like Rick Astley. You reinvent yourself. Uh, you, you wonder how he was able to do that with all the turmoil in his life.
6: Well you, you know that Justin Timberlake's a great example and, and Michael Jackson as well who was a young superstar and, and, and really continued uh, and like Michael Jackson had demons as well but the, the wonderful thing about art is its endurance you know we, we have this beautiful uh, art that he left behind and what great songs that he wrote that he produced, that he performed and and you know fortunately that's his legacy. Also, I, I think he, he was the type of person, I met him once, and he's the kind of person you meet once and you feel a connection and like them instantly. And, and that's a rarity as well. So he, it's, it's tragic, but I, I think you, you see a lot of very, very talented people who have their own demons. And, you know, it's sad. Maybe that gives them a window into a creative process that most of us don't have. I don't know. But fortunately, he left behind something beautiful.
0: We're talking with Jim Rave, Inside Edition. You know, it seems like, I mean, you've met so many of these folks. To me, when you see stars, it's like a mixture of, of ambition and charm and talent. And and sort of the ability to be social, political animals, because it's such a, an incredibly subjective, a relationship-oriented type business. And you see people like Jeff Bridges and Tom Hanks and Matt Damon. And you say, you know, if they were in the corporate world, they'd probably climb right to the top of the ladder just because of their political savvy. And and you see somebody like George Michael, and you wonder, you know, did he really fit into that? I mean, I don't I don't see him as that kind of a a wheeler dealer in that world. Maybe that's why he. He, he didn't, you know, I guess at the end they say he was gaining a lot of weight, he just was embarrassed, he didn't want to be in public. Maybe he just didn't have that kind of uh, you know, c- competitive sort of corporate attitude that would allow him to, to persist and survive the way a lot of other stars do.
6: Oh, I don't know. I, I think he had a drive in that he demanded perfection of himself, and I think he demanded it in his art, perhaps too much so in his own life, his personal life. But there was no guile you know when you show up alone for an interview, and I've interviewed many many celebrities, and a lot of a lot of folks are you know a lot of them are really decent people, some less so, but many of them show up with an entourage he didn't he was stripped bare, so to speak, you know he what you saw is what you got and and he didn't hide the fact that he was nervous he didn't hide the fact that he was there alone that 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 uh, you know, uh, he was there to talk and be open and honest, and I was struck by that. If that's a that's very unusual, and and I respected that a great deal.
0: We're chatting with Jim Murray of Inside Edition, and I know Jim. Uh, of course, we lost so many uh, famous folks, as inevitably happens in the course of a year. And uh, uh, Prince, uh, I mean, talk about controlling the news cycle. I, I will say, you know, with, with your old friend uh, Wolf Blitzer from CNN, I was I was a little amused. Uh, because he, everyone was talking about Prince, hour after hour, and at some point, Wolf Blitzer said, "Yes, the tragic loss of Prince. Who can forget Purple Haze?" And I thought, "He didn't no, say that. Did he, he really?" Did. Oh, absolutely. I watched it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, you could mix up Jimi Hendrix and Prince, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if you had the opportunity to interview Prince or, or report on him uh, to, to uh, much extent. I mean, it seems like he was uh, sort of a private guy. Uh, I don't know how, how free and easy he was with the interviews.
6: I don't. I, I never interviewed him. I, uh, you know, I followed his career, reported on his career, you know, and talk about David Bowie, another brilliant artist who we lost this year. And yeah, it's. it's um, I don't know. Maybe you and I are getting to the age where uh, some of our heroes. We thought of as contemporaries are passing too soon, and it's making us feel vulnerable as well. but well, you but know, we, you we've just, lost a lot of people.
0: I think you appreciate what people contributed. I mean, like Florence Henderson. Uh, you know, she's, what a
6: what a sweetheart she was. What a oh, the stories, woman.
0: absolutely. I've heard so. I don't know what your experience was, but I've heard people tell stories about her that you just had no idea uh, of what was there. I mean, she you had the you know the Brady Bunch and so on, but there was a whole lot more to her than that.
6: Oh, I'll tell you something about Florence Henderson. I met her about 25 years ago at the Indy 500. You know, she was from Indiana, really? and uh, so she there and David I Letterman. At a, well, no, she and I were at a, a party at at, at uh, well, yeah, David Letterman as well. Yeah, but she and I were at a party at the owner's home and then owner's box mm-hmm. at, at the Indy, and and my dad and I were there for the first time going there, and and 20 years later, when I would run into her, she'd say.
5: Jim, how's your dad
6: doing? You know, she remembers really? that. Who does that? She, and, and she was so charming, and, and she loved to uh, flirt. She was quite a flirt, and uh, tell dirty jokes, and very personable, and self-effacing, and not self-aware, but very aware that people were looking at her and talking about her. And, you know, and, and she was just so charming, and so gracious, and so lovely. I liked her a great deal.
0: And another person we lost this year, of course, uh, was Arnold Palmer, and and I was struck by a story about him. I mean, talk about being transformative. I mean, he just took the sleepy, uh, elitist sport and and gave it to the masses and and just did a a wonderful thing. But he... You know, he was an enormous business tycoon. And I read that what happened is that when he first was a star back in about 1960 and he wins the U.S. Open, Wilson was his sports sponsor. And he goes to the head of Wilson and he says, hey, I'd like a $250,000 life insurance policy for my family. And the guy says, no. And Arnold Palmer says, what do you mean? No, you know, it would cost you a couple of hundred bucks a year. No, we don't do that for our executives. We're not going to do it for you. That caused Arnold Palmer to say, you know what? I am going to just uh, go on my own. I don't need Wilson. And he started the Arnold Palmer Enterprises, and it just took off, and it was the template for sports stars for decades to be able to, you know, whatever, design golf clubs or golf courses and so on. Uh, Such an inspirational guy. And, of course, Muhammad Ali lost him. Talk about being transformative. So we had some huge losses in the sports scene this year as well.
6: And with Arnold Palmer in particular – you look at a guy who's wildly successful creating golf clubs designing them business tycoon as you mentioned and 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 what do people remember of him his character how how decent he was yep. how he when when someone would win a tournament he would handwrite a note to them he didn't even know them per, perhaps and write a note congratulating them and and each of those people would would tell how they how they have that note framed on their wall because of what it meant to them and he, despite all of his success he never lost sight of what was really important and, and what a what a tremendous lesson that is really because um, how, how can you imagine staying in the public eye for 40-50 years or more no scandals just people talking about how wonderful you were to them.
0: And, you know, and that's a great point to make because look how it impacts uh, future generations. Jordan Spieth this past year was in a tournament fighting down to the wire. And you know how hyper-competitive those guys are. He's on on near the very end. His opponent, I think it was Ricky Fowler, sinks this huge putt. And the camera captures Jordan Smith with a big thumbs up. He didn't have a broad smile. It wasn't like, oh, I love losing. But he had the grace to give him that thumbs up. And he has specifically uh, given Arnold Palmer credit for teaching values like that. So, you know, the the things he stood for live on. So, hey, Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition, always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, The the book is The Last Day of My Life. It is on Amazon.com right now, wouldn't you say?
6: Yes, I would. Well, okay,
0: we're <laughs> there, we're total agreement, Jim. You have a great New Year's, and uh, appreciate you, you sharing the, that amazing uh, story about George Michael, that uh, uh, guy who's on everybody's mind right now.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Eight twenty-five. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety KABC. Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Let's check dependable traffic with Bill Thomas. 829 The Time, Talk Radio, is 790-K-A-B-C, Royal Oaks, and for Doug McIntyre. Rob Marinko, what a satisfying story I have here. Korean Air is getting tough on yes. those unruly passengers. <laughs> they're using stun guns, tasers, yeah. and they're hog-tying these people. How satisfying would that be the next time you're flying? Oh, and man. some guy's had five or six drinks, and he's just totally out of control. And they're, oh, please, sir, you know, can you, can you sit down? How would you like it if this Korean Air steward has whipped out her taser and just shot the guy, and you know, all right in the solar plexus. I love it. That would be great. But you yeah. know, the problem is the airlines are so shy. Because oh, you know, we don't want to get sued. That's why they let the miniature horse on. You remember the story oh, about the, the, the support horse. animal? Yeah, right. He, the guy hey, that guy took- was legitimate. That guy
1: needed that horse for emotional support. <laughs> and you are mean for having think that it's just he's trying to get the horse on for free.
0: Well, the problem was though, Randy, that he got into coach, which he paid for, but there wasn't enough room in coach mm. for the horse, so they put. Put in, him in first, and then the horse started to poop. It did what And it was like do. a slip and slide up and down oh, the man. aisle in first class. And, you know, that must have been disappointing for people who paid a little bit of extra for warm nuts. Small and it, price
1: to pay for a happy man <laughs> with his
0: horse. <laughs> oh, okay, well, that that's one man's opinion. Uh, I
2: think we should end it there.
0: 830 The Time, Talk Radio, 790-K-ABC. Not fake news, but real news from Rob Marinko. 906 The Time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre this week. I hope you're having a nice, relaxing holiday week. So, uh, big uh, big doings on the presidential front, Rob Marenko. The president has uh, come out and said that, uh, God, he could have had that third term if it Stop weren't, for, it. Stop the, weren't it. for the pesky uh, constitutional oh, amendment that, that banned it. Well, to help us sort out this intriguing possibility, we got John Avalon, political analyst and editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast. John, welcome. How are you doing?
7: I'm doing good, guys. Good morning. How was your holidays?
0: They were great, and uh, they're continuing to be great because uh, there's so much presidential news. It's so much fun to talk about (laughs) these folks. I mean, uh, for openers, did you think it was a little odd? I mean, is this kind of an ego thing? Was it it a high level of maturity for the— for the president to say, I could have won another term if, if I'd been running. It was okay for others to say that, but uh, for the president to say that himself, what do you think?
7: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it it's not typically. I mean, he's a pretty self monitoring guy. You know, it, in context, he was asked the question by David Axelrod for his podcast, uh, who's now a fellow contributor at CNN. And, and he was asked the question pretty directly. So, you know, he provided a, a direct answer. Got to tell we the truth. You know, kind of. Yeah, wait. Just you know, decorum aside, what we know is that there were around six million, five six million Obama voters who didn't show up for Hillary, and Donald Trump did around one million votes less than Mitt Romney uh, four years ago. So it, it, it's not you know it, it's not an insane self-aggrandizing thing to say. It's probably impolitic, and a lot of Democrats are upset because it. Is perceived right. as a diss on Hillary, but um, you know it's academic since we passed the Twenty Second Amendment after
0: FDR. Yeah, and that, that's right. I mean, let, let's talk history for a second. I mean, FDR broke the Republicans' hearts four times in a row, and I and I believe that uh, you know ever since Washington, uh, it had been kind of a, a, an unwritten law, just a tradition, two terms, yeah. and that's it, which is pretty amazing when you think of the the egos of the guys who had that job in the eighteenth <laughs> century, the nineteenth century, no. Nobody goes past that, That uh, that they don't cross that Rubicon. So FDR does it four times, and then the Republicans get back in control and say, okay, that was fun, but guess what? Constitutional amendment, no more. And then they're screwed because Eisenhower comes in as a Republican. Two-term, <laughs> sails through, and even though he was getting up there, not by today's standards, but uh, he was getting up there, I think most people say he could have won a third term, but no. It was banned by by the constitutional amendment, and people said I think Ronald Reagan might have been able, in spite of the problems that he was slipping a little in Iran Contra. I think he might have been able to do it, but okay, it's it's the rule now. Do you think right. Do you think John Avlon that this was really a slam on Hillary in a way for Obama to say um, I would have been able to uh, to carry the, the day for the Democrats this time?
7: I, I think we overindex that you know sort of uh, you know. Kremlinology competition all the time. I mean, you know, unusually, President Obama campaigned really hard uh, for Hillary Clinton. I mean, Al Gore made the mistake of sort of keeping Bill Clinton in the woodshed, who you know had a 62 percent approval rating at the end of his term. And and Obama's approval rating certainly has surged uh, in the last six months in particular, probably by comparison to Trump and Hillary. Um, But let me nerd out in history with you for a second, because you raise a great point it was considered an unwritten part of the constitution and it was democrat harry truman the process began under him because even fdr's vice president recognized that you know four terms was, was a dangerous precedent to set and and you know i actually have a book coming out uh, on january 10th about washington's farewell address which is where he establishes the two term tradition um, and spends the entire document warning about the forces that can derail the democrat our democratic republic hyper partisanship excessive debt foreign wars and foreign influence in our politics, so uh, you know a lot of those things are coming to pass. Um, but it is amazing that that the power of his example constrained everyone up until FDR. Uh, and and once that position was broke, then Democrats and Republicans said we we got to put a cap on this and make it part of the written constitution because it opens the door to to to, to would be dictators. And uh, and and there was a lot of example that that time. So, you know, Clinton probably could have won a third term. I think it's fair to say Obama could have won a third term. Um, but coulda, woulda, shoulda, we're in a surreal circumstance of our own right now, sure. uh, where, you know, as of, as of, I believe just today, yesterday, I think they confirmed 2.9 million votes is what Hillary won the popular vote by three times Al Gore, Wow. um, and it's an unprecedented situation all around.
0: We're talking with John Avalon, editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. And, you know, in fairness to uh, the FDR situation, I mean, we were kind of—the storm clouds were coming, and, and there was war talk in 1940 for his third term, and then in 1944, obviously, we were well into World War II. So there kind of unique circumstances for his his multiple terms. Back on the slam on Hillary, though, it's probably over-indexed, but I can't resist, because, you know, having read the Edward <laughs> Klein books about blood feud,
7: I mean— Oh, dear for- God, let's not over-index. The Edward Klein family. Well, fiction. but I mean, yeah, yeah, he that.
0: had some factoids in there for the first no, t- he four did years. He makes up that, dialogue wholesale. Well, okay, but let me ask but you anyway. about this one. Okay, yes, Obama made her Secretary of State. That was pretty neat. But for the first four years of the Obama administration, according to <laughs> these reports, not once were the Clintons invited to the Obama White House. It seemed like there was some deep-seated antagonism, <laughs> and they only turned to Bill for help during the re-election campaign up against Mitt Romney because they. Really thought they were in some deep doo doo.
7: Yeah, look, there, there, there was bad blood after the 08 campaign. Uh, remember, Bill Clinton went after Barack Obama in the South Carolina primary, saying that he was the biggest. The whole thing was the biggest fairy tale he'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, which was which was interpreted as as being uh, somehow racist at the time. But but it's not incidental that he names her to the cabinet as Secretary of State. Um, and you can do that as a godfather, keep your enemies close, your friends close and your enemies closer. But not only did uh, did Bill Clinton really come through in that 2012 convention speech, which led B- Barack Obama to dub him the Secretary of Explaining Stuff, except he didn't <laughs> say stuff. Um, but, uh, but he really did. And the Clinton campaign and the Clinton camp felt that the both Obamas uh, went above and beyond with total enthusiasm in making the case uh, for Hillary. And I think they were among Her most effective surrogates. Um, What's stunning, and I think you know, there's a a lot more work to be done. You know, if for example, Milwaukee turnout was down uh, dramatically, uh, particularly among the African American community. Now, whether that was because of attempts to suppress the vote with ads about uh, which were running about, um, you know, the super predator comments back in the 1990s or whatever, there wasn't the same level of enthusiasm. Um, that, uh, that had been seen for Barack Obama. And, and interestingly, he also outperformed uh, among the white working class, which had been her base in that 08 primary. That had been her core strength, but it didn't translate. Um, it, it's, it's a fascinating story about, uh, that Bill Clinton had been warning about, about the, the Democratic Party, I think, ignoring the need to remain connected to, to white working class voters and being so fixated on, on emerging coalitions. Uh, that they ignored a, a crucial part of their base in that blue firewall. You got to give Donald Trump's team some credit here. You know they campaigned uh, in, in Wisconsin um, when everyone thought that was insane, and they flipped it just barely. Um, obviously, the same thing with Pennsylvania. They kept missing Minnesota close. But when you're winning Iowa by 11 points, that's an indication of a larger problem, and the Hillary camp saw it coming way too late.
0: We're talking with John Avalon, editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. So, John, um, is this maybe a signal for Obama to talk about well, okay, since you asked me, I would have won a third term. Is it a signal that maybe he's not done? Uh, he's thinking about maybe staying active? I mean, when you think of a, an ex-president's bucket list, he's only in his mid-50s. What are you, commissioner of baseball, uh, secretary general of the U.N.? <laughs> uh, he's got to do something. Do you, do you think he's going to try to stay involved and be a powerful force in Democratic politics?
7: Look, I I think this is a unique situation because I think he is still functionally the head of the Democratic Party. The Democrats don't have a very deep bench. That was partly reinforced by the fact that Hillary froze out the crowd uh, in, in this year, where you had Bernie Sanders, who was ran a very strong campaign, but was considered a joke. And Martin O'Malley, former Maryland governor, Baltimore mayor, couldn't get arrested. Um, But Democrats don't have a deep bench. Barack Obama is hugely popular with Democrats and broadly, obviously more popular than Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump by a significant margin nationally. So I think he's going to play a more active role than we expect. We have a long history of ex-presidents. And, you know, know, Herbert Hoover had an extraordinary ex-presidency. You know, uh, Harry Truman stayed somewhat involved. Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, had an exemplary ex-presidency in many respects. Um, Bill Clinton set up the foundation, um, but still had the taint of the the Monica Lewinsky scandals, which led some folks to keep a degree of distance. And that was really transferred to Hillary, who moved on to the Senate. I think you're going to see Barack Obama function as the head of the Democratic Party until the next nomination contest. And and even Joe Biden, I think, is going to play an outsized role. It's going to be fascinating. And don't forget, he's going to remain in Washington, D.C., while his youngest daughter finishes high school. Um, and and you, can, you just can't get a clearer contrast than Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So I think you're going to see something we haven't seen in a long time, uh, an ex-president playing an outside role, outside role in our national politics and the politics of this party.
0: Now, polls say that the Democrats would really like to see a fresh new face, somebody new. I mean, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. He's going to be 79 in four years. Biden will be 78 in four years. Elizabeth Warren will be angry in four years. So, I mean, if they want somebody fresh, I mean, that guy, Tim, was it Tim Ryan from Ohio who tried to unseat Pelosi? Youngstown, my mother's hometown. Yeah, Yeah. this guy, I've heard him on the radio, uh, super articulate, aggressive, and really this great message about jobs in the economy. We can't just be a, a coastal party and blamo Nancy just blows him out of the water because she's got chits piled up like nobody's business. I mean, is that kind of discouraging in terms of the Democrats looking to the future?
7: Well it, it, it shouldn't be. I mean look, you know JFK had a great comment after he narrowly won the 1960 election over Richard Nixon. Um, and he was called uh, he and his team were called excoriatingly brilliant. Um, and, and, and he remarked, uh, you know, we're just a couple thousand votes away from being excoriatingly stupid. (laughs) Um, I don't think Democrats should over index, uh, this election. We always do these sort of death watches. The Democrat Republicans have a demographic problem, even though they squeaked this one out with the electoral vote. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to keep hammering this home, but 3 million votes in the
0: popular is a massive margin. Yeah. On the other hand, Um, the electoral margin wasn't a squeak. I mean, that, that was pretty, pretty healthy chunk.
7: Yeah, pretty healthy chunk, but that's less than that's basically 100,000 votes in three states that that creates that margin. So, you know, again, I think drilling down and looking at the inputs matter. But Democrats have a real problem with the lack of depth of the bench. And I think doing a Hail Mary to Congress probably isn't the right place to look. I think what you got to look is at at governors and senators. um, But I think, you know, you're going to see the next Democratic contest really start to shake shape around the midterms. And you're going to see fascinating people. And I wouldn't be surprised. If you see a bunch of people taking a note from Donald Trump and running for president on the democratic side of the aisle without having a history in electoral politics. And some of those could be pure vanity projects and some of them could be really powerful and compelling. Um, but you also should look, there's a democratic governor Montana uh, who won re-election. Uh, not a place you, you typically find Democrats. I think Democrats may have a renewed appreciation for the fact that they need to reach out beyond their base, um, but not at the expense of their base because Hillary not only lost because she lost the white working class in the upper Midwest, but the margins of turnout among African Americans and Hispanics weren't weren't what they should be as well. So it's going to be one of the fascinating stories, is is how the Democrats uh, sort of regroup and re, uh, reemerge. And and the fact is that at least right now, you know, Donald Trump's the least popular president elect in our history since we've had polling, and has shown very little interest in really reaching out beyond his base uh, despite the margin. So the politics of the next four years are going to be fascinating. It's going to be a tough time. It's going to be a challenging time but it's going to be a vitally important time to remain civically
0: engaged. We're talking with John Avalon, editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. So, John, how did the pollsters get it so wrong? I mean, with all their algorithms and their mainframes and so on, I guess it was that L.A. Times outlier poll that always said, hey, we've got this, you know, 1 to 100 uh, excitement scale, and we really think Trump's going to—nobody predicted it. You know, people out in California remember what they called the Bradley effect, where we had a black mayor Uh of L.A., Tom Bradley. He was going to beat the white guy, uh, and the polls all said he's going to— beat him and then he lost and people said you know what the folks who talked to the pollsters didn't want to be seen as racists well with all of trump's homophobia and grabbing this and that you can imagine they wouldn't tell the truth and yet that didn't seem to be a big issue or story as we worked our way through september and october uh what's your explanation for how the pollsters just couldn't see it coming
7: well i, I think a couple things you make a good point about the la times poll um but but by and large um you know we have not only individual polls, but a poll of polls to go on. And consistently, um, they showed Hillary Clinton uh, between four and eight up. Now, that could itself sort of depress turnout. The Bradley effect you speak about is important, and that was discussed. We also discussed the reverse Bradley effect. You know, are there people saying they're Trump supporters in the South who may be Hillary supporters? Um, You know, the obvious lesson, the Bradley effect, we sometimes um, clean it up for, for public consumption, but it was that there were obviously people who weren't just afraid of being seen as racist, but, you know, maybe were uncomfortable voting for a black guy, therefore, on some level, racist themselves. Uh, and, and that propels uh, Duke Majin to some extent. Um, I, I think because you saw turnout so dramatically down um, uh, across the board, that was also something that hadn't been indexed. But not only the pollsters, but also the people who tried to be more statistically relevant, the 538s and the folks in the upshot. I mean, when you go from 80% likely that Hillary wins in the morning to, you know, flipping that 180 in six hours, you know, has paying attention to your work really been a good use of everybody's time? Probably not. There's no cure for people not telling the truth to pollsters, however. Um, there have always been issues we've dealt with in the recent past. Our cell phones being indexed appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in, in this case, you know, it was folks who traditionally have uh, responded to polls who came out in large numbers and young voters and African-Americans and Latinos, didn't at the margins they had uh, been projected to, despite the fact that Hillary inherits an unprecedented uh, get out the vote database that served Obama incredibly well in both eight and 12. Ultimately, I think a lot of the responsibility has on, is on her campaign. They obviously over index data and they, they under indexed get out the vote and outreach. And they took a couple of key states for granted. And America turns on that hinge of 100,000 votes in three states that mm-hmm. is a very thin reed to hang the republic but that's where we are
0: so we uh, hear about these uh these dynasty issues the bushes and so on and we hear that uh, they're moving chelsea into a little home little cottage next to the big house in chappaqua so she's going to oh, be running God. for congress soon but here's my question for you john avalon what about Michelle? I hear I remember rumors that she was going to run for the United States Senate from Illinois, that she's a rather ambitious woman. Uh, is, is that in our future? Is your, is your crystal ball? Uh, is it too cloudy to know if we're going to have a, a Michelle serious run for the presidency?
7: Look, I, I, I really try to resist breaking out the crystal ball. Um, and and uh, I, I, you know, particularly regretted after the Access Hollywood tapes and I thought the election was over. One thing everybody did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in any rational circumstance, um, (laughs) you know, it would have been over. Independent women, Republican women were deserting him. What's very clear also is the Comey letter reasserted a lot of her negatives, um, I think baselessly, but decisively and kept uh, Trump's uh, sort of, you know, consistent self-inflicted wounds, which is the nicest way to say it. Uh, out, out of the press. Here's the thing about Michelle Obama, and I think generally what we do in politics and prognostication, it's the old story about generals fighting the last battle. There is very little <laughs> to suggest that, that, uh, that Michelle Obama is obsessed with politics. In fact, I, I think you know what's been most consistent about her uh, is reputation is being someone who's basically tolerated with a sort of stoic, good-natured spirit Barack Obama's political career. Um, I think it would be very, uh, despite the fact that we have the Clinton playbook, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of rational reason to think that Michelle Obama is going to get into politics. But, hey, I could be wrong. <laughs> All
0: right, John Avalon, political analyst and editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast, thank you so much for sharing part of this uh, nice, uh, pleasant sort of holiday week. And uh, so next month, you're saying your book on Washington's farewell address is coming out?
7: Yep. Washington's farewell: How the founding father uh, warned, but you know, the founding father's warning for future generations, and it's a really prophetic document that's directly relevant to what we're going through right now. So it's time to rediscover some of his wisdom. That's out January tenth from Simon and Schuster. I appreciate
0: it. We will be watching for it. And you have yourself a great New Year's. You too. Take care, guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. 924 the time. Talk radio seven ninety KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Stay with us. And let's check in with Bill Thomas for a Dependable Traffic. Bill, how's it looking? 9.36 The Time. Talk Radio 790-K-ABC-Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. So, the reaction to the Donald Trump victory. We've been talking about that a little this morning. A very, very emotional. A lot of folks had, uh, had a reaction. It was kind of surprising to them. They were stunned. We well, you welcome your thoughts. If you'd like to reminisce, uh, go down uh, memory lane, 1-800-222-K-A-B-C. How did you take it? Let's go to Ernest in Los Angeles. You're on Talk Radio 790 KBC. Hey, Ernest, how are you?
8: Fine, are you? How are you doing?
0: Doing great, thanks.
8: Okay. I had picked him, so everybody in KBC knows that I picked him way before anybody else. Had oh, so him.
0: you predicted that Trump would win. Why did you think yes, he was going to win? Yes, everybody at the station, yes.
8: Okay. Rob,
0: the... is Ernest telling the truth? Absolutely. Okay, Rob says you're telling the truth, Ernest.
8: <laughs> okay. It's because everybody had not looked at way, the way the country was going. The jobs that we have lost over the over the years, that we sit around and watch corporations take our jobs overseas and then say they're not going to bring it back. And looked if they had took a picture of Detroit and all the Michigan cities, all the cities and everything, which they came up with the word Rust Belt. I just knew that back back east we looked like a World War Two as far as all the country, whatever. Number two, you were taking you were taking the point of immigration and and not thinking that that meant anything. So my point was this. you were taking this country in the wrong direction and pushing it down down the country's uh, throat. That is why this man beat seventeen or whatever it was politicians, which means that. The other side also was not recognizing them, so the only thing was left was the Democrat reporter, Yes, uh, Hillary should have got, it, should have beat, uh, uh, should have been a, beat Obama, but she lost in that one. She if she would have won it, but.
0: Well, Ernest, let me ask you this though: If you're right about uh, the, the jobs and, and immigration and so on, how come uh, Obama was able to beat Mitt Romney four years earlier? Why didn't he lose uh, for the same reason that Hillary lost? Because she kind of stood for the same thing Obama stood for.
8: You, you're right, but see, it's a time and a place with anything. You was pushing it, they, they, and you still the, the country. Each department was each Democrats and Republican. Republicans was the first, first ones was just pushing down immigration because they went in. And had the first ten million people with a, on Reagan or whoever it might have been, and by the time it got to, by the time we got got to uh, Obama and everything, it still wasn't that bad. And plus, the blacks jumped on one hundred percent voting on the corner, and, and that's just naturally on the point. But after that, no, this country was saying, no, we're not going that way. We we want this to be America, da da da. And then a the man comes out with American first and everything. They said, okay, there's the man. He talks crazy. He says things bad and everything else. You threw money at him. I told him that before on, on busy Throwing money at him is not going to work anything else because you was missing the point, and you're still missing the point, and everybody's still missing the point. This country has changed.
9: Hey, and unless- well,
0: you know, I think you're right, Ernest. I think the whole key is that it was a change election. I mean, first of all, even without looking at the personalities, it was the Republicans' turn. And I don't say that because I like Republicans. I say it because ever since World War II, every single time the American public has been faced with the question, may we have a third term, please, for the same party, every time the answer has been no, except for one. And that was George Bush after Ronald Reagan. That was the sole exception. And that was because Michael Dukakis did not look good in a tank with a Snoopy helmet. (laughs) Uh, uh, Other than that, every single time. So it's a change opportunity for that reason. And also... It you know things aren't that great. Yeah, Obama has engineered a comeback, but it's kind of a lame recovery. And so as a result, it's not like we were motivated. Oh my gosh, this is working great. Let let us stick with it. I mean, the American public had a lot of things to complain about. They didn't trust the Iran deal. They think that the the uh, ISIS rose because of, of the of the vacuum of power. It was time for a change. Obamacare was not popular, so. All of those things came into play. What's your take? One 222 two K A B C. The number. Let's go to John and Hawthorne. You're on KABC with Royal and for Doug. How you doing?
9: Hey, how, how you guys going this morning?
0: Doing great. What's your take on uh, why Trump won?
9: Well, uh, I, I'd like to piggyback it back off your question that you uh, asked Ernest, which was um, uh, how come uh, if the jobs were the issue, what happened last year with Obama? Yeah. I think what happened was. I think what happened was this time around, first of all, Trump expressed himself in a way um, that he conveyed to people that he wasn't going to be a normal politician. In other words, he was going to stick to his guns when it came to policies. He was expressing himself in a way that he was going to change like and be capricious like most politicians are. Right. Um, he was expressing this way, it, it, excuse me, conveying himself in a way. That wasn't so articulate, but it was down home, particularly to the. You're right. And
0: John, you remember how people talked for a long time when the Trump phenomenon started? They said, he says what's on my mind. He says exactly what I think. You know, Rick Perry's wearing glasses and Trump said he's wearing the glasses so it looks smarter. And everybody thinks that's what I've been thinking, but (laughs) nobody says it because it's not politically correct. So you're right. I think he articulated people's actual thoughts.
9: Yeah. And these and, and the thing about it is these are thoughts that people actually have a lot of, say, for example, black people, um, um, you know, had feelings about illegal, illegal immigration in terms of them being, mis, uh, uh, um, um, you know, scooted out because of, um, right. um, you know, illegal immigrants well, what, coming over here. What about that? Do, the you think, do you think voting?
0: that the comment by Trump resonated with black voters along the lines of, hey, what have they done for you? Nothing but government dependency for 40 years. Give me a chance. It couldn't get any worse. Unemployment's that's, through that's, the roof in the black community. Do you think that worked for him?
9: That, that line right there did it. That line did it. When he said, you guys are Democrats, all they do is come to your churches and get your votes, but then when they're in office, they leave you. That did it. That did it for blacks that even rung in my head a little bit. I'm and like, statistically,
0: wow. he did, uh, he certainly did better than people expected him to in the African-American community. Obviously, you didn't see quite the turnout with Obama not on the ballot. But uh, yeah, Hillary did not have the strength in, in the inner city areas that they expected. And I think that helped break through the Rust Belt.
9: Yeah, I wish Hillary could have won. I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of a, not afraid, but I see Trump putting his, Dominoes in order, in terms of the people that he's putting in his cabinet, that's going to buttress his agenda, uh, the military people, um, and all the other people um, that sort of like buttress his, his 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 comments that he was making throughout the campaign. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of scary to me this whole thing that is going on with Russia about the nuclear arms races and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of like in my mind, oh, well, here we go. I told you so. I thought it would be something like this. And I don't know if we're traversing down that road. It does
0: seem scary, but, you know, you don't know what to think. Is it the situation that he's just kind of clueless? You know, he, he doesn't really understand, you know, geopolitics and nuclear proliferation? Or is he kind of crazy like a fox like Ronald Reagan, who I think exploited the idea that the international community saw him as an unpredictable cowboy, and the Russians thought that Reagan, if he developed his Star Wars defense shield so that the the bombs from Russia could not get through, it would be an impenetrable shield, that the Russians thought, oh, my God, once he puts the shield up, then he's going to kill us because he'll drop his bombs on us, which, of course, Reagan wouldn't do. But they thought he would. And they bankrupted themselves trying to spend their way out of this fear. So I don't know if Trump's going to turn out to be, you know, the, the good kind of crazy or the bad kind of crazy. But I think you're right. Everybody's a little worried about it at this point.
9: Right, and I think the enigma is going to pan out being who is he going to cater to? Is he going to cater to his base, or is he going to cater to the the, the GOP? Um, that could be like a fork in the road, so to speak, and it could be some um, kind of hard to get his agenda across in uh, in some situations because again, who is he going to like really cater to the base, or because there's some things that he's talking about doing that his uh, the GOP party. Um, is against and, you know, won't let him do so. No, you're right. There's there's a
0: lot of divisiveness. And it's funny. I mean, here we are analyzing this to death, and he hasn't even taken office yet. It's really remarkable. Hey, John, thanks for sharing your thoughts. 1-800-222-KABC if you'd like to share as well. 945 The Time, Talk Radio, 790-KABC. Royal in for Doug and Bill Thomas with the Dependable Traffic.